What's up, everybody? This is the Brews, Beards, and Brains podcast. How you doing, Crippa? Can you hear me, Crippa? Check one, two, Crippa Shaker. Yep, we're coming through. We're coming through. Yep. Nice. Episode four. Okay. Episode four. Episode awesome. four. Politics. We're talking about politics. This is crazy. It's crazy. We're doing an episode about politics. This is exciting. Yeah. Been hyped for this. So we got a spe- we, we yeah. special guest, incoming insight, wonderful poet, wonderful educated mind, incoming underscore insight. Okay. If you want to follow on Instagram and catch her poem, how are you incoming? I'm okay. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. You're, what, a, what a beautiful mind you have. It's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, and Conscience and I were just thinking the same direction. I was able to catch you guys working together on the uh, talk and having actually having a brilliant conversation on Conscience's Open Mic Live. Quick plug on that, guys. Feel free to check that out. Show your love there. Friday night, 7 p.m. Yeah. Um, but I was in the comments like, hey, Insight's freaking genius. Let's find a way to put her on our podcast somewhere. Um, and then Conscience was immediately thinking the same thing during the live. He's like, I don't know if Crim was yeah. thinking this, but we're thinking at the same time. And uh, no, it's it's brilliant. And we're really glad you're able to join us on such short notice and everything. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being here. And it's wicked. You're, you're born and raised in Venezuela and now live on the East Coast of the USA. Right. Crippa is Texas. I am British Columbia, Canada. Uh, we were going to talk. We might have a, a buddy of mine, Josh Courtleave, joining us later. We'll see what happens with that. When he comes on, we will discuss Canadian politics because he is more well. I'm actually, I actually follow American politics more than I follow Canadian politics. To be honest, uh, I, I, I don't know why, why. Why do you think that is? It, it, your, your politics, your political system is entertaining. It's so messed up. I don't know what the, I don't <laughs> know what the hell it is. <laughs> I think it, it also might be the media coverage. But, well, uh, that, and that's it. And that that's it. That's it. And, and, we'll, and if we'll we talk about that, and if we decide to go to war, you guys are coming with. So. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we're like we're like your your dependent little brother. You know, like that's how it is. You're like our we Canadian Spetsnaz. You guys can handle the snowy weathers. That's right. That's right. We're, we're yeah. We're the uh, we're we're the, the 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 winter troops. That's for sure. We'll teach you how to live in the ice cubes, bro. <laughs> Brews, beards, and brains. Welcome, everybody. How do you like that clip of my son at the start? That's a wicked new little... So that's going to be on every single one of our episodes. It. It's going to start off with my son's voice. I think that's amazing. I love it. I, I, I know he was doing some stuff earlier, and I just thought of Kimmel when Kimmel did that with his kids. And it, he's... Yeah. Uh, is it cool if I share his, his name? Of course, Lionel. Yeah, Lionel. Wonderful kid. And uh, just really cool to do that. Adorable child. And I'm a single Loves guy in my his 20s. Uncle Crippa. Yeah, Loves I his mean, uncle Crippa. <laughs> I mean, I'm a single guy in my 20s. Most people, I mean, like, I hate your kids. I don't know you, right. but I don't like your kids as much as you like your kids. But Conscience's son is fucking adorable. Love him. Yeah, he's going to be a, he's a smart young man. <laughs> he's uh, he's something else. So this is where me and Crippa are beer drinkers. Incoming Insight is a wine drinker, but we drink beers. We try and get different craft beers to promote because one of our dreams on this podcast is eventually have some, uh, some sponsors. So I went into the liquor store in my hometown and i talked to jackie who is the manager of the liquor store and i'm like hey where's your craft beer section i didn't realize there's a whole section for craft beer i used to just grab cold ones out of the fridge but i found a brewery which is in victoria the capital of british columbia on vancouver island about a six hour drive south of me and they are called vancouver island brewing right now i am drinking a dominion lager 
It says, this Schwartz beer is as dark as the night sky that's been seen from Sandwich's Dominion Astrophysical Observatory, an authentic Bavarian lager. It has aromas of coffee and chocolate and smooth, clean finish, and it is fantastic. And then I got a uh, Faller Northwest Pale Ale from the same brewery. I got a mixer pack because I figured that was appropriate. And then I got a Victoria Pilsner. So I'm kind of mixing it up today. And then, of course, I have a Broken Islands Hazy IPA. That is Vancouver Island Brewing. Vancouver Island Brewing. We're going to clip this. We're going to send it to you. Get in touch with me at conscience at gmail.com. Send me some beer, and we will talk about your beer on every single podcast. Yeah, and along the lines of that, I'm going to stick with these people who please sponsor me one day. Lone Pine, you guys are 20 miles away from me. I love you. I've met you owners before. Just try to remember what I look like without a beard. Uh, that That's what that was. And um, it was when you guys were actually putting out the Smash IPA in the Magnolia area for the first time. I got to have some drinks with you, uh, some of the first kegs in the bars. You guys are amazing. Uh, I love everything that you do, and I gladly support local businesses, and you guys are small enough and underappreciated. Uh, so, But please, um, we, we talk about beer every time. If you do like our content, feel free to send send me some of this stuff or send the Lovely Conscience some stuff, too. This week, we'll be drinking the, what is it, titles? The 667 Neighbor of the Beast by Lone Pine. It's kind of hard to see with a little background light coming from my screen. There you go. Kind of got a little devil over there. Uh, yep. The reason being, this one is a 6.6% alcohol, as well as a 66.6% IBU, era for the name. Uh, it looks really think, wonderful you, with the pour. Sorry? Do you think that Do you think that was serendipity, that that just kind of happened with the brew? And they're like, holy shit, that's kind of freaky. Let's name, name it after the devil. Yeah. It Look was, at that I amber. Was, I think it was really close to that. Um, and the head's kind of frothed a little bit because I just poured it a second before, but it is a wonderful color. Mm. It pours mm. great and the, very aromatic. Tastes fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. Cheers, brother. So that will conclude the brew section of our show. Lone Pint, you know where to find <laughs> us. But your ass, we're going to send all these clips of me plugging you, and I'm, I'm still going to yes. plug you. And we're eventually, <laughs> we're going, eventually we're going to be drinking free beer and talking about it as much as we can. That's the idea. This is a new podcast. This is episode four. If you want to watch some of our other podcasts or listen to them on Spotify, we have done What is Misinformation? What is Consciousness? What is Community? And this is our fourth episode, Politics, or What is Politics, I guess. Uh, just Politics. Everyone knows what Politics is. We're going to dive deep. If you look at the, the scrolling banner, we're going to talk about the spectrum from right to left. We're going to talk about U.S. government, Venezuelan government, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, the border, COVID-19, the vaccine, and news outlets. Where are we are getting our news and we'll wrap it up with some final thoughts so i want to ladies first I'm, I'm kind of an old school chivalry type of guy um now in incoming is born and raised in venezuela she still has a lovely accent a lovely venezuelan accent and i wanted to learn more about a socialist government and maybe maybe if you could just take us through a bit of a journey of the political change experienced as is a kid growing into a young woman and when did you leave venezuela how old were you uh, a long time ago about 22 years ago so but i used to okay. go every year i yeah i traveled every year i haven't been there in the last five years it's been five okay. years six already i haven't been there but uh yeah i used to go every year but you I mean, you, you, you grew up there mind? right and you still have family there to my understanding i right. do 
Okay. Yes, I do. I do have cousins. Fam uh, my sister is still there. Uh, my wow. parents were there. They passed away. But yeah, and, 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 and that's I'm, the reason. I'm sorry to ask you this, but I think it's really it's really relative to our conversation. Uh, I, I think me and you, I'm 38. I think we're about the same age. Is that correct? We're about the same age. So, so when you left Venezuela, you were a young adult. Right. Yeah. Actually, I'm a little bit older than you. <laughs> okay. She, 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 she ages like a fine bottle of wine. She is a beautiful no woman. Yeah, no, you're doing great. You are doing great. Um, Thank you. So no, no worries. No, she's 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 experienced and she's brilliant and she's a professional in her own right. And obviously, uh, for the sakes of anonymity, by your internet handle, um, and we respect that. But uh, just some yeah. of the experiences that you've been through to be able to grow there with the kind of background that you had, and now where you kind of feel that you sit, and maybe how the politics affected this, maybe encouraged it or discouraged it, and what that climate felt like differently now than the climate that was America and maybe potentially is America. So, so so first, let's because because you're a guest, I, and I don't know that much about you other than your writing, to be honest. It, it, only share what you're comfortable sharing. But what is your education? What is your type of work? And then maybe give us a bit of a, a bit of history of your life in Venezuela and coming to America. Oh, my education. So you're gonna you're gonna notice I'm I'm really really old. I uh, I, I live many lives during this particular life right so actually i do have a degree believe it or not in fashion design uh, i i studied fashion design in venezuela uh then um i moved to the us actually i have a degree in fashion design and i did uh, a really long time ago uh computer uh in venezuela it was some type of computer programming uh <laughs> career that i did it was it was a technical career for two years, and I did it because I wanted to uh, create designs, you know, and not just painting, but also in, in uh, digital type of design a really long time ago. Now everything is digital, right? Uh, when I went to school, it, it was not. Uh, I came to the, US, to the U.S. and uh, to Michigan, and um, it was... Fashion design was really competitive. Uh, capitalism here in the United States, uh, big corporations really eat this small, uh, smaller person who wants to start a business. So I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, practice. I didn't go into fashion here in the U.S. Uh, professionally, right, as a job. Um, so what I did is, uh, <laughs> um, I was uh, self-employed. Uh, believe it or not. <laughs> We own the bar. <laughs> we own the small business, a bar. I'm a terrible drinker, I was telling you, and we did own a bar. So, <laughs> so you know, all I, I, I still remember all about uh, a bar, running a bar, right? Liquor, how to order liquor, the type of liquors. <laughs> I know all that stuff, right? Uh, I just didn't drink it. Um, then after that, we, after maybe 10 years, I decided, you know, like, like you said, right? Everybody would tell me my accent, right? Everybody liked the accent, a Spanish accent, an exotic accent. And then, by the way, I also speak Arabic, right? My parents were wow. Lebanese. <laughs> so my parents were Lebanese immigrants to Venezuela, so I also speak Arabic. And uh, so I, I heard 
all the time my spanish accent and i also know arabic i do have a spanish accent in arabic as well so i thought well why not maybe i can just pitch my language i pitch my language and culture and, and uh, make a little bit more money right and, so and where where's your family where's your family from lebanon from the middle east Le lebanon yeah. oh the, okay yeah. i just got to yeah. say before you continue lebanese food is my favorite I'm a sucker for a good shish tayuk. If you could ever come to Canada and cook me some hardcore Lebanese shish tayuk, I would be I would be forever grateful. Continue, please continue. It's a date. Uh, well, we're going to me and Kripa. We're going to <laughs> we're going to Canada. Right on. Right? Oh, we're shish tayuk is the best. We'll make it I know, right? And I can do some Venezuelan things too. So right. So, oh, oh, yeah. yummy, yummy, yummy! Oh, we, we, were, we were we were talking food while you were starting to get ready. Oh my God, we need to start exchanging food porn. I'm a closet chef myself. Um, yeah, and, and I'm a chef. I'm a chef. I, I'm a I'm a trained chef. I went to college for chef. I did a five year cooking apprenticeship. I cooked awesome. for 22 years professionally. So I'm I'm a huge fan of food. I'm a foodie. I don't talk about it a lot, but I am totally obsessed with food, and especially Lebanese food. And in Afghanistan, Afghanistan has some wicked fucking food. Um, um, Greek, I love Greek food. I love, I love, I love, um, I love the, I love everything really. I love it all. But uh, Le Lebanese food is honestly, I love that you're from Lebanon because that's all, honestly one of my favorite foods I've ever tasted. I mean, of course, I'm I'm tasting Canadian versions of. Lebanon food. I've never tasted the real thing. I've never been to fucking Lebanon. No, you know, I've never gone to Lebanon. I've never gone to Lebanon. But, but still, I, I you, can, to. you can at least you can at least tell the difference um, by those food experiences. And this is a conversation I had with my parents at one point. And they said, you know, you look at all these different restaurants and what part of town they're in. French restaurants in the nice part of town. Every single type of restaurants in the nice part of town. But where are all the Indian restaurants? And ultimately, I love Indian food too, Kripa. But, but ultimately, I love, I love it. It's because we can't even decide on a menu. The uh, the <laughs> there's too much, you know. And everyone, oh, this is Indian food. No, this is Indian food. No, it's it's about in the long term, a culture is only preserved if they have representations on screen, and if their food survives, because right. we always, always, always will need to eat. And we all learn about more cultures and authentic, authentically just in the way they eat and live. And uh, that's something that interests us, you know? I mean, obviously, General Tso's chicken hasn't taught me much about Chinese food, but... Uh, right. Or I love General Tso's chicken, though. Yeah, no, it's delicious. It. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> you know, like, but. And, that, and that's cool. I never, I never really had... I never really thought about that. I forget to think about culture. But right now, like, I'm Irish, Ukrainian potatoes and stew we got Kripa who is South Indian we got incoming insight who is Lebanese Venezuelan not we don't have we don't have any of the same nationalities in us we got we got, we got like five different nationalities on the screen right now which is cool because now I'm just realizing this is brilliant to talk about politics with with five different nationalities on the screen that's perfect that's the best way to do things right well, you're right, and, and and any any place that we, the way I look at it, if I'm part of an organization that does not appreciate diversity of thought, they better be damn sure what the mission is. Mm -hmm. So, uh, otherwise, I, I'm only really going to engage in communities that welcome diversity in thought. And even if right. your opinions may differ than mine, as long as we're willing to have it in a civil manner, 
Uh, yeah. At least the dialogue and rhetoric is taking place, you yeah. know. Um, but no, you guys would probably, you guys probably know way more than I do. I probably, the most American here than when it comes to Middle Eastern cuisine. I love Turkish kebabs. I always have. I've had a weakness for Turkish kebabs. They're really good. <laughs> um, and uh, like, I think about that with my, my grandmas, my mom even. I try to learn recipes from her because I think about things and from my grandmas even. Or, um, they're making things every day that some people would love to have that when I get to try it, I can't go to any even Indian restaurant and order this. Right. And so what happens after they're gone? Is that no gone doubt. forever? And um, that's such a big part of the culture too. And I just see the way everyone's faces light up. Uh, I think I got this from my mom. Um, when you make something authentic like that and how happy everybody gets. And um, there's some genuine joy in that. It's very universal. So mm -hmm. No, it's great. Crip, I know what you should encourage your family to do, what my mom did. Like yeah. my mom makes the best fucking homemade pizzas and like spaghetti sauce and like fucking all these wicked recipes that she has. And yeah. she makes cook she makes cookbooks. So once once a year she sends me a cookbook with her recipes in it. You should encourage your grandma to do that before she dies. Because no, then yeah. you got it. Then you got yeah. books. We all write I, I books, ever... that's what we do. I have her teach me and like, and it's, it's different than just looking at an ingredients list or like a cookbook. I, I like, I'll be like, okay, are you free on this time? I'll come watch you do this. Cause right. then you get the insight on, okay, this is this specific type of spice or seed that's only found here. This is what it looks like. Good. This is what it looks like. Bad. You want it on this kind of heat at this level with this instrument so that you don't overcook it or undercook it. And that'll result in a variety of flavors as well. Right. And to get, that kind of experience, that's priceless. And uh, and to think that it'll be gone um, in time. My, my, my parents and my grandparents are very like, oh, I don't want to put it in a cookbook. I don't want to give it a recipe. So I've considered, I'm like, hey, you don't even have to have your face associated. Like, show me how we do this. I will either bottle it or I will like record and edit your process. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's brilliant. Speaking, speaking of spices, let, let's dip into spices a little bit. Um, incoming, what, what kind of, what, what's like the most dominant spices and herbs in Lebanese cooking? So Lebanese, uh, they do have, they, uh, mix up different spices. There is one that they use it a lot. It's called the seven spices and okay, yep. they do mix up seven spices. <laughs> I don't know exactly what they are. Of course, uh, I don't know. I'm sure like if I Google it, I can find it exactly. I don't use it much uh my mom you're talking about mom uh, she didn't like it she didn't like to use the seven spices she believed that uh already lebanese food is so rich uh right mm -hmm. and it has uh you know uh, the, the spices really would take over the taste yeah so right. i and uh so i cook like her just salt and pepper and uh, yeah whenever okay. applicable comment you know but but it's the seven spices it's called the seven spices and, uh, and right. i see okay. it a lot in the, in the Lebanese markets, right? And then, and then Kripa, what about what about what about Indian? Like besides oh, curry, boy. what are what would you know? Do you have any like uh, I mean like um, like cardamom? Um, yeah, um, cardamom and tea, for instance. Um, yeah. That's why I have to even just from a cookbook. That's why it's better if even for me, I spent time in Asia. I've lived in India, um, right, for work, and I've. When I go to an Indian grocery store, when I'm looking for these specific items, it is like stepping into a new world every time. Right. There is such a variety of spices, produce, grains, 
um, that we don't necessarily use in other types of cooking that are readily available throughout Asia and very, right. very distinct to region. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like kind of like uh, Insight was saying, you got like the seven spices, just like the go-to for Lebanese cooking. Based on the region in India, there'll be like a go-to secret recipe uh, for each specific dish. And then that dish will change if you're eating it in one city as opposed to another city. So right. I think a lot, a lot of issue with the preservation of Indian culture insofar as food is we can't decide what Indian food is. You ask mm-hmm. a person what Indian food is in one part of the country, they're going to give you something completely different than if you ask it in another part of the country. Um, right. Which is, so what's, what's so when, when, you, when you were living in India, what was like yeah. your go-to, like eating three or four times a week, what was your go-to meal? You're going to hate this. I used to travel quite a bit. And this is, I'm very American. So when I travel, I actually take, I was going to see if I had one around here, a bottle of Tabasco with me. Um, yeah. Because I know Tabasco is all purpose. It'll make things go down. Now, I don't want to be offensive to people when I travel either, right? Because I don't want to be like, oh, I can't handle this. But my body is still very Americanized. So I do experiment. I do try things. But I think I'm Tony Bourdain or Andrew, Andrew Zimmern for like the first week, right? I want that full immersion. Right, right. I want to eat like a local. Yeah. I want to, I want to, oh, <laughs> yeah. This is like, yeah. I want the real experience. I'm no tourist, you know? I don't need this hotel food. I don't need this hotel water. But the yeah. longer that I stay overseas and I get so, I miss America. I get, as Jimmy yeah. Buffett would say, cheeseburger and paradise syndrome. So, right. and and what's funny is like, in, when you have that after that first week where you really start to miss home and you really try to find places, you'll find all the other Americans in that city looking for that one burger joint. You'll be like, right. oh my God, like um, there was a diner in South India in Chennai, the city of Chennai, uh, rest in peace, uh, uh, but named after the owner Sparky. He died I say five or six years ago. They were open for like 20 some years, but, and this is probably, well, it's no, no longer harmful information, but pretty much everybody that ate there was from the US consulate. So, like, it would just be other Americans. And you're like, oh, right. look, it's an American diner in India. Of course it's going right. to be other Americans. But um, Sparky, just little nostalgia was Sparky, things. Was Sparky Indian or was he a white guy? No, he was, he was a white guy. I think he moved out there okay. for some reason. Uh, okay. But it was a fun little, like, traditional 1950s-style diner with a license plate from every single state in the country and just, like, a traditional okay. American menu. But just right. so, like, because you can't even find the ingredients uh, oftentimes for your own cuisine at home. That what right. you consider like your your um, go tos, you know. Right. Um, right. But to think that's how my parents felt. Right. When they when first they came here. here. Yeah. Yeah. Blows my mind. Just just to think about so that. What yeah. I'm curious, I'm curious. Incoming, is there any type of like like American influence in Lebanon? Like American food influence? Oh yes. I know. Yes, no, I know nothing. I know nothing about Lebanon, like nothing, not a thing. So that's a really good question. It's related to politics, by the way, you know. Yes. Uh, so there is this conception that, you know, the whole world hates the United States, right? But then you go to Lebanon and you see KFC, right? For instance, McDonald's, I mean, all those American capitalist, uh, symbolic food type, of, and, and food is such important element of culture and you you know you go there and you see them there in Beirut and the capital right and lines of <laughs> Arab Saudis you know looking uh, waiting in line to eat KFC 
uh, and, uh, and and there is a culture, right? There is something Levi's, right? There is an American Levi's. Everyone loves. You know, hmm. it's, it's 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 a sign, I guess. It's a, of I mean, they we love American culture, right? Outside the United States and in Lebanon. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I've been uh, in families, foreign family homes, you know, they invite you to eat. And of course, I mean, they, make, they cook their food. But sometimes uh, they also flip in hamburgers, for instance. Right, for right. Yes. Isn't it, okay. isn't it crazy how much of an influence? And that's why I really wanted to do this show today. Is, and that's why I'm not talking about Canadian politics. Because the USA is the greatest country in the world. It has so much influence. Amen to that. So many, so many, so many countries. Like seriously, I'm gonna you guys, this. I'm gonna play you this guys, one. you guys are like I love Canada. Don't get me wrong, I fucking love Canada. It's a great right place up. to live. I'm right. fully, but 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 the things that the USA has done for the world and for culture and for and for for democracy across the. So let's talk about Lebanon. Okay, before we get into your background in Venezuela, growing up, why don't you tell us a little bit about the government? that is uh, currently in Lebanon? Lebanon is a mess, right? So I've been there on vac uh, vacation. I've been there a few times. Not too many times, but a few times. I told you I'm really old, right? So I I've, I've, I lived so many years in this earth. And uh, <laughs> believe it or not, one of the <laughs> I don't times... believe you. I don't believe you at all. Like, there's no way you're older than 48 or 42. 42? You're putting me, you're putting me in a very uncomfortable predicament right now. Because I know. I know. You never ask a lady your age. I, I don't care. What I'm curious about is why has incoming kept so many secrets from me? I know, right? She's a very private person, and her and I have been developing a rapport for a while. So when yeah, I got I to see her on live last night with you, and you were like, she's a perfect candidate, I'm like... That's great. Yeah, I was gonna bring that 100%. up sooner or later. <laughs> well, how about my well, I, I met I met uh, I met incoming basically as her being a fan of my poetry. So likewise, and and, and maybe me it's being my, a fan maybe of it's hers. my fault. No, yes, I mean, but yeah. I, I found hers. But I, I I gotta be honest, I fell in love with her poetry because she fell in love with mine. You know, yeah. so so may, maybe it's my fault. That I haven't reached out enough, and that maybe that's why there's all these things that I don't know about incoming. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Fault. I would. I, it's, I wouldn't even read that. I think she's a very she's a very brilliant person, and uh, she likes her privacy, and I totally respect that. And there's an allure to being mysterious that I quite yes, enjoy. Yes, there is. Uh, I always like. Once, could you imagine? That's the scariest thing about being me. I think. What if I actually met somebody and then I ran out of stories? Yeah. Like, shit, what am I going to say? They're going to think I'm boring. I got nothing to pull yeah. out of the bag. You know? Well, it's the, be <laughs> it's the best when, uh, when stories are manifested by interaction. I think that's what we're proving right now. Here we are, half an hour into a podcast about politics. We haven't even fucking discussed politics once. We we've talked about food. Okay. We've talked about fucking beer. But that that's what it's all about. And I hope you, I hope you guys aren't in a rush because I can see this being no. a long one. Um, but uh, but back back to Lebanon. Let, let's so with your infrequent experiences and from stories from your your family and lineage in Lebanon. What is you said? It's a mess. What what is the what is the 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 political party that's in charge? What is their ideology, and why is it a mess? 
So they have uh, in Lebanon, they have a system that was left by the French and, uh, and um, it says specifically who the president has to be from what background. So Lebanon, uh, the same as the Middle East, the entire Middle East is very complicated, right? So I don't, I don't have a straight answer and I think to give you an answer would take, you know, several hours, but it's very uh, tribal, right? It's, uh, it's divided by religion, divided by, uh, and within religion, within sects as well, uh, is, there is conflict between them. Uh, the government, uh, the president, for example, has to be Catholic, right? and uh, the people doesn't uh, elect the president. It's a, the parliament is uh, who elects the president. Uh, I think the Asian Lebanon, same as Latin America, the entire Latin America is corruption. And uh, right now, uh, it, and we don't have, we don't even, I don't think there is even a straight answer because everything I hear uh, from Lebanese here in the area that do follow closely, right, the politics is that they don't even know. So they're calling for, uh, you know, just new people, new uh, new president, new... Uh, new and, leadership, yeah. New, uh, I mean, and, and a change as well. They want to, uh, you know, uh, completely eliminate the system. They, they want uh, that the people to for the people to uh, elect the president, and then at the same time, they don't want to because if they elect the president, the president more likely is going to be Muslim, and uh, it's a mess. I mean, I don't know if that gives you an idea. Of so, how much so, so as far as, I think one thing that she brought up, which is brilliant, that a lot of people don't appreciate is, I know America doesn't necessarily have the best name overseas, but there is a love for the American experience. There is a love for American culture. There is a love to try to be like what we get to do every day, um, no matter where in the world you are. Uh, that's why you see Starbucks in every country in the world. That's why you see KFC and McDonald's in every country in the world, Pepsi and Coke. Um, but like, I've never spent too much time in the Middle East. I've done mostly flying through. I have friends that I've met through travels, um, some from various countries in the region. And I always try to ask them in specific ways. So insofar as Lebanon, how do you feel that the politics was affected by the religious religions in the area? So I know you mentioned the president actually because of the former French government has to be Catholic, but the Lebanese people are predominantly Muslim, correct? Right. Okay. So this must, this must lead to like dissent. What, right? what kind of percentages are we talking about? So it's about 60 something percent Muslim and the rest, uh, and there are small minorities that are Druze. Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly the percentage, about 3%, uh, and, but basically 60% Muslims. And within that 60%, there are Sunnis and Shias and, and other smaller sects. And then there are Catholics and the bigger, uh, the biggest, I guess, uh, sects are uh, Maronites, Maronites, I guess, and uh, Protestants. Okay. And they have conflict. You know, among themselves too. Like there is killing. I mean, I'm not saying just disagreement. Yeah. Actual killing among themselves. So yeah. And do you do you think that those divided religions uh, in the region, and particularly the country of Lebanon, and your experience living there, do you think that has a part to do with the political system kind of being in disarray? Uh, because I didn't live there. That's the thing. Is that oh, I no, no, sorry, you didn't live there. Sorry, your parents yeah. are from there, and I know you're born in Venezuela. I do apologize. 
no, but, uh, it, because yeah. it's important, you know, like I've been there vacation, I, you know, yeah. just like any tourist, right? I, and I, but, but of course, because uh, uh, my family, you know, and I live in Michigan and I uh, close to Dearborn. Dearborn is where the majority, Lebanese majority are here in the U.S. So, I mean, I hear a lot of what they say, their opinion. So, uh, I, I, what is interesting, that's what I hear, and it's just opinions, right? So, some of the Lebanese, especially Muslims, uh, just interesting, right? They believe they um, they do want to end corruption in Lebanon, but it's fascinating that well, that they don't want to uh, eliminate the system. They want the president to be a Catholic. Interesting. Uh, right? Isn't it? And uh, my mom was one of them. She was very, you know, and the reason is that um, they're more liberal. I mean, not liberal, but they're more... Uh, Progressive? Uh, Right. It's, it's yeah. very religious. So it's very difficult even to say, right? Right. No, definitely. And that's why it's a very complicated issue. And I know, the, uh, and, I, and thank you for making that distinction. I didn't mean to draw that conclusion upon you. But yeah. even from what your parents must have said when you're in Venezuela and to what you know from the community that you're existing in right now, it's amazing to get uh, insight from you, insight on the matter. <laughs> so thank you. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Something that I noticed there is you might be interested, right? So just okay. something that, so my parents are from the south of Lebanon, right? Okay. And south of Lebanon, so here you're gonna know a little bit more of my background. South of Lebanon are mostly uh, Muslim. And that's where uh, the Hezbollah stronghold is. Uh, so there are a lot of areas south of Lebanon, close to the border of Israel, that uh, are mostly Shia. You're familiar, right, with Sunnis and Shia, right? So yes, that, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Shia, that's where my family is from. And uh, when I go to Lebanon, we uh, a few times, again, in my lifetime, right, uh, this hundred, this last hundred years that I lived on this earth. So I've been there a few <laughs> times. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I usually go to Beirut, but I do go visit, obviously, the, you know, family, you know, my mom's family in the, in the south. And uh, in that area is where... Hezbollah after Israel left. Right. I left in 2000. Man. And I saw that, by the way. I saw it when Israel wow. was there. So I was there before 2000 a few times. And uh, I remember, again, as a tourist, right? I was just a tourist. I didn't live there. So I remember still, also seeing yeah. the Israelis there and the Israelis supporters, right? There were a lot of Lebanese who worked for Israel. So I remember them there. Uh, they were, uh, um, I don't remember what it's called, I know them in, in actually I know the name in Arabic, but they, I don't know if they even exist, and I know that there should be a word in English, but it doesn't exist in the United States, but there are places every certain, uh, every time, um, if you reach a specific town, you have to stop, and the military for that particular area, they have to search you, and they, those checkpoints uh, and stuff. Yeah. Like something like that, right? So, wow. so I saw them along the way, right? Either That's sometimes nuts. they were Christians yeah. because there were area where Christians. Sometimes they were Druze, and then Muslims cannot enter that area. But because I had a Venezuelan passport and then an American passport, I, I I'm fine, right? I can enter. So I would go in, and then in that area, I remember, I remember before 2000, I remember the Israelis post, and they were not Israelis; they were Lebanese, uh, either Christians or Muslims, right? That worked for Israel. Right. And then after Israel left, they became the traders. So, uh, right. And then, um, so after they left uh, Hezbollah, they ran for uh, 
politics, right? They went out, it was a militia. Right. It's still a militia, still considered right. a militia, but right. then they ran uh, as a political party too. Interesting. And, uh, and of course, they're going to win in the area. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. So the role changed. It was not just to uh, remove the occupier, but also it's like we're still there to make sure that the occupier doesn't come in again, but we're also a political party. I, and we right. won uh, the city and we won. So there, uh, most of the political uh, chairs, they, they're held by Hezbollah in the area where my family uh, are from. And my mom and my dad went to Venezuela in the 70s, even before the civil war. So all of this as well, even though they're from there, right? They were in Venezuela when all of this happened, uh, right? Um, so I, I, that, that's so profound to me too. And I think it's very difficult right. for those of you guys listening to understand the feeling of being in another country when there's people with guns walking around you on the regular that are willing Searching to fight you. with their lives, that have checkpoints set up, you'll have guns in your faces, you're unarmed, um, <laughs> and you're just kind of getting from A so what, to B, you, hoping these guys don't get angry. And uh, that's, what do you call that's something government? anybody sees normally. <laughs> no, no one gets that. No one, no one experiences that. I got a question. Like, what, what is it called? Is it like totalitarian? It is a democratic country. That's what is interesting. So some people describe it as a semi-democratic only because they don't uh, they don't uh, elect the president. It's not the people. The people elect the parliament. They elect the smaller uh, you know governments, but then the parliament elects the president. Okay. So some people okay. they like to say it's a semi-type of government, but it's a it's a it's a democratic. You know. Now in so they the they uh, they elect the people that elect the the president. Right. Right, and they elect so, the elect. So, okay. So what so, is so I mean, just to, okay. Just to tell you about the Hezbollah, right? Like what is interesting, a lot of people in that area, they they want they don't want uh, they want Hezbollah to make sure that Israel doesn't come back. But at the same time, uh, you know, Hezbollah has gained so much power in that area. I mean, to the point that they hold every single office, almost every single office, and they really have power over people, yeah. that uh, it's a government within a government. Right? That's nuts. Right. It is. is, yeah. is, is. So uh, last time I was there, uh, I mean, again, I'm, I'm American, my kid, um, you know, and uh, yeah. <laughs> American, right? And uh, so they don't talk to me. They don't talk to foreigners. Right. You can go, you can go to the South, you can, they won't talk to you, but they will uh, make sure that they know who you are, what you're doing there, yeah. you know, uh, and you feel it, like you feel that you're being watched. Right? Oh, yeah. Right. When I went yeah. before 2000, and you might like this, I right? saw so one of the people that worked for Israel, right, was uh, a member of my family, has the same, and has exactly the same last name that I have. It was a cousin of my mom and a cousin of my dad, because, you know, they're all cousins, right, somehow, right? Third and fourth and fifth cousins were all cousins. That's a very collectivist type of society, right? So, and this person had the same last name like me, and uh, he was uh, not only on the checkpoints, right? That's it. That's the that's the name. The checkpoints. Again, they were not Israelis; they were Lebanese working for Israel. Okay. But you would see the Israeli soldiers, uh, you know, far away, but there. And uh, so one time I went there, uh, one of those trips, and um, all I had to do is say that I'm his family. 
and he and I'm coming from Venezuela. I was coming from Venezuela. He came and said hi to me. He invited me to his house. I didn't have to go through checkpoint. I was not searched. <laughs> I was so I was privileged, right? I had a little Good. bit of wow. privilege, so I went through. Nice, nice. <laughs> and then I, I I got to go to his house. He was killed after, by the way. Oh my God. Wow. Israel, right? His family, his wife is here in Michigan. Never saw her. Never, you know, but his uh, wife made it here to Michigan, the wife. Do you, know, do you know why he got killed? Um, uh, Israeli government, they don't know exactly, you know, the, again. Like, the, no. yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of going yes. on and with Israel's interest in the region and Israel doesn't fuck around either. And then the factions within Lebanon, I just yeah, can't imagine. And most people that you guys are listening to, even if you have military history when you go into these situations you're armed when you're going into a situation overseas as an american like this this is one of the i've, I've been in certain situations like this it's so scary and you have no idea and being able to talk to people and know somebody like that is the difference between getting stopped at one of these checkpoints and somebody trying to take money from you or screw with you or god knows what and um, you know men with guns and that you know the, they'll target people like us. Um, and right. so it's, it's, it's like crazy. People, but people like us who are born in this country, or maybe that was my attitude, right? It's like, what the fuck? I have an American passport, right? Or a Venezuelan yeah. passport. Like, fuck all of this. I can, I, <laughs> right? Like, I can make it go anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's totally like that. And you don't see it all the time, but there is some hostility and at the same time. But hey, I appreciate it when I go through customs and, customs and immigration in most countries in the world. There is always a United States and UK passport line, and then there's the rest of the world. I know. Sorry. It's not something. It's not something, yeah. I know. Why do you think you that exploded. is, Kermit? Um, I, think, <laughs> I think that... That has to do mostly, I think, with our treaties when, when the passports were formed. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's what it is. Uh, the only reason I would I was ultimately, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound shallow, but when I was younger, I, <laughs> I was always like, hey, I need to marry a British chick. Because if I had a dual passport with the United States and the UK, you can pretty much go to any country in the world uh, <laughs> legally. Right. You know, right. so there's some countries that your American passport won't let you go to. Now there, there's restrictions, especially after Obama, on Cuba. Because Cuba, I was like, hey, Cuba's right there. That's got to be pretty cool to go to. I've know? been to, I've been to Cuba like eight no. times, man. I fucking love Cuba. That's, That's awesome. awesome. That's awesome. I, 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 I vacation <laughs> there. My my whole in my whole twenties, uh, teens, twenties, thirties. That was a vacation spot. It was the best. I love Cuba. Uh, Veradero, uh, Hogeen. Hogeen's fantastic. Veradero is like a wicked city. There used to be this little this little pizza shop, like way down the strip in Veradero, and I'd go there like once a year when I went to vacation. And every time awesome. I went back there, the you. owner of the restaurant remembered me. I was a regular. He'd give me a free beer. He'd give me tax or uh, he'd give me like a half price pizza. And, and I was like family, just like that. And, and the, the, I, I stayed at the same resort a couple times. And the same people remember my name, remembered who I was. They, it was like, because tourism in Cuba. Such a big part is of a, the industry. Such a huge, like the people who work at the, at the resorts are some of the most privileged citizens in the whole in fucking the country, country yeah. you know, like because they not necessarily do you get money from that privilege, but you get connection. And what I did, 
I didn't want to leave them money because then they'd have to claim it and they probably wouldn't get it. It'd have to be transferred into into Cuban dollars and it wouldn't be uh, Canadian or whatever it is, Amero, whatever it is, Amero, whatever the, 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 there's like a different currency for the resorts, not the currency that the communist government pays really? their citizens in, whatever it is. There's a different currency for the resorts. So I didn't want to leave them Canadian money because then they'd have to exchange it and it would all go to the that. government. So yeah. what you do is you bring like pantyhose, uh, brushes, toothpaste, deodorant, and you leave that shit on the bed for the maids and you give that shit to the people who work in the resort. And that is like gold, you know, because they don't have access to the uh, to the industry and to the import in the importing of services yeah. and goods. They don't have that in Cuba, right? So especially Cuba because of the embargoes, place. yeah, because exactly, of the embargoes exactly. and the political reasons. Yeah. There, a lot of products are not regularly uh, that are not regularly available there. But even now, that, aren't, then, aren't so the, being aren't, an island, being an island, and with the tourist industry, just shipping in the cost of some of these products. Your average citizen in a lot of these islands aren't going to go to the store to the Walgreens to get the same kind of products that we do. That was right. uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's an experience that you see, uh, especially overseas. People want the American experience. What American deodorant? Or American, American products? Smoke. Yeah, product. American perfume. You know, well, wear American jeans when they go to work. But you're right. Some yeah, of the most privileged right. people definitely work in the hospitality industry in these countries where tourism is a major part of the GDP per capita. And that's right. This enables them. Not necessarily to be more privileged than other people, but they at least get access and a little bit more worldly knowledge. Because for most yes. people, they never leave the island that they are they're born on. That's right, and all of their all of their goods and services are made and directed on the island. So, yeah. like for for example, people always complain about the food in Cuba. Well, how the fuck do you think a cow is going to do living in thirty five degree weather for twelve months a year? Not going to do so great, you know. Not going to not gonna have too much grass to eat you know what i'm talking about the chickens how do you think fucking chickens are gonna do out in the fucking 35 degree heat 12 months a year it's not gonna work right so that's the thing about about cuba now now i believe americans are allowed to go there now are they not yeah so i believe that's been lifted uh that that was but that was just before the obama administration everything so you can technically go to cuba i just haven't found a reason and I lived in the Caribbean before I did my stunt here in Houston, and then the pandemic happened, so my travel's gone down quite a bit. And I was like, oh, another island? But definitely I would love to have a mojito in Cuba one day. Um, oh, dude, it's the best. Yeah, yeah. And um, nothing but respect for the colors of that country, too. I think it's a very colorful country. Um, I love places yep. like that. Um, it's yeah. really funny you mentioned the beef thing, actually. It reminded me of one point before we actually go back into the politics spec of everything. Um, in India, when I was there in southeast India in the city of Chennai, uh, also known as um, Madras, as the British called it, um, okay. there it's one of the biggest cities in Southeast Asia and in, in, in India too. Um, and uh, it's like the Detroit of India is, is the best way right. to put it. They're, they're, they're predominantly manufacturing sector, but huge city. Um, anyway, I knew most of the really good places to eat um, because privileged enough to be there for work and to have the US dollar so I would eat like I could eat local but I could also afford to do things I can't do here just go to like a five-star hotel and go eat at these different various restaurants and places on the regular you know <laughs> and they, the dollar does go farther in Asia um, and one of the biggest most popular restaurants at the time was a steakhouse in India in Southeast India and the most yeah. popular crowd of people that would show up to the steakhouse were the most religious Brahmins because they were like in their 20s 
and they just are like, screw it. I want to know what the big deal is. I want to try beef. I want to have the proper beef experience. Let me know what this is about. You know, maybe it's for me, maybe it's not. And to think that I had a friend who um, originally from Chicago, but Italian family, and they had this uh, Italian steakhouse out there. And it was one of the most successful restaurants in the area. Uh, huh. Basil, if you're still up, I uh, much love to you guys out there. You know, you know who I am. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and to think, because, you know, um, for those of you guys that are unaware, it's not just a joke or trope. Like in Hinduism, the cow is a sacred animal. So uh, in most places, you don't get beef. But uh, it right. is readily available in India now. It's not like you can go to the grocery right. store and get like a pound of ground beef, but you can totally go to a restaurant and order a steak, which is nuts. Where where are they? Are they importing their their beef? Uh no. Uh, I, I, they got to be uh, some some cuts, I'm sure. But at the same time, I'm sure they have the facilities. They are farming beef. It, it makes sense that they would. It just it's most it just makes the most sense, you know. Um, but no, it, and I I tried it. It's it was good. You know, right I mean, I, I'm spoiled. I live in Texas, you know, like right. I still get I get access to J Japanese ground beef here in Texas costs pretty much the same as local ground beef. So, like, right. I, I literally get some of the best beef products in the world here in Texas. I'm spoiled. Right. But right. Um, the fact that I was having a steak dinner in India. God damn. Right. It's not something incoming. Uh, do you eat do you eat beef? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't. I'm not crazy about meat. I'm not crazy, yeah. About it, but yeah, I'm not a vegetarian. Like, uh, like I, I, yeah, I, I add more. I guess vegetables. I add more <laughs> right to my whatever I do. What's the situation? Yeah. What's what is the Lebanese situation with beef? Um, what do you mean? Uh, like, what do you mean? Is 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 beef prevalent in Lebanon for for meals? I like like, but I'm think I'm just thinking about the, what kind of Lebanese food that I've had. And usually it's chicken shishtayuk. Um, there's also beef shishtayuk, of course. But is beef like commonly consumed? It is commonly consumed, but it's expensive. That's that I know. Okay. Uh, that when okay. they come here to the to U.S., when they come, they say that the prices, I, I, you know, they're cheaper here, right? So, so it's right. uh, yes, yeah, so it's a commodity right there. But Lebanese food is interesting. They say it's a lot of uh, like vegetarians, for instance, they would they love it because. Uh, Shishta walk and that those are the most famous, right? And uh, and we do have a dish. I don't know if you've ever tried it. Like Lebanese, they have it's a um, so it's a it's a food specific to Lebanese and it's raw meat. I don't know if you've ever tried. It. It's called kibbe. It's wheat and raw meat, uh, and uh, I mean it's really good, <laughs> right? Oh. But of course, it needs to be fresh. It has to be, you know, it's not good for you, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's right. raw meat, but. But it's uh it's the the dish with the bullet, right? So it's that that's the dish of uh you know the Lebanese dish, right? It's uh yeah, keep okay. So 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 <laughs> love learning about what? stuff like this. It's awesome. Thank you. Uh, me Sorry. too. It's that's that's why I love doing this fucking podcast because there's I don't yeah. know. And that's no, what it's yeah, all about. We, we, we now, set out asking big questions and we always learn so much. And uh, today specifically, especially with the rescheduling and restructuring and the last minute nature of this, uh, we may stray a little bit in conversation, but just roll with it, guys. We're always here for a brilliant discussion. And uh, yeah. Insight, thank you for that, that cool stuff. To my understanding, um, Middle Eastern cultures predominantly eat more lamb or goat meat yeah. as well, to my understanding. Oh, yeah. So I'm not sure um, what the, the prevalence of that would look like in, per se, um, uh, Lebanon. In India, that's always like the big, like, like lamb curry or like uh, prawns, uh, fish stuff, like the big seafood eaters. Um, heroes. Oh, yeah. Euros. Oh, so good. 
Yeah. That entire region. I've always, and, and I know this is more south towards Africa, but I've always really wanted to have a solid tajin. I have not. Um, that's the, it's essentially, they, they cook it in that clay pot. It's like a, mm -hmm. it's like a little top. And it, that's the name of the pot itself, but it's this wonderful like stew. And literally anything that comes in that pot is considered tajin. But usually it's okay. like lamb shanks in there. Um, it's generally associated with the regions of Ethiopia and Northern Africa. But um, okay. very strong Middle Eastern influences as well. So okay, yeah, right on. So so what year was it incoming? Do you prefer being called inside or incoming? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay. Whatever. You I like I like I like incoming. One day I will learn your real name privately. Um, but um, what? So what year? What year did your parents move to Venezuela? Yeah. Uh, so my dad before my mom. My dad was I think sixty six. Hi, my so your mom. mom is your mom is Venezuelan. My mom no, she was born in Lebanon. She moved to Venezuela seventy uh, one, right before okay. the Civil War. So yeah, long time ago. But they passed away. They, they yeah, they, my oh, mom sorry, passed away. Oh, so was was there a mass migration of people then from Lebanon trying to oh. get away from the Civil War? Always, I think it's been a mass migration from Lebanon way before that, right? Uh, I know uh, people here in Michigan that immigrated from Lebanon almost a hundred, over a hundred years ago. Right. There is history of Lebanese immigrating over a hundred years ago. And a lot of Catholics immigrated uh, to Latin America. So most of right. uh, Lebanese in Latin America are Catholics, are, are Christians, I would say. And uh, 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 Muslims, are, there are more now. I think they started immigrating, uh, I don't know, 90s, 2000. So most of them immigrated here to the United States, especially here to Michigan. Uh, right. So most of my family, <laughs> again, I told cousins, it doesn't matter if it's four, five, six cousins, they're all cousins. Uh, they've been here in Michigan for <laughs> over 100 years. I have family that they've right. been here you know, in Michigan. That's well, really I, interesting. And I apologize if uh, me or Conscience ask a question that may come across as ignorant or stupid to you as we try to learn more about this history as well. Well, it's Kripa. It's hard not to do that when you're ignorant and stupid. Right? Like, how, how could I not? How could I not ask ignorant, stupid questions when, in fact, I am ignorant and stupid? No, so touche. I was guilt. I was guilty of that. And a lot of the times, I'm asking not only for my sake, but also for the case of our lovely listeners. Um, yeah. But yeah. It, especially then, being in the minority, which would be Muslim Lebanese emigrating then to Venezuela, how was that? Were you guys? Do you feel shunned? How are the political differences there? Did you find Venezuela, or did your parents rather find Venezuela more freeing? What were their opinions on the matter at the time? I think they became Venezuelan immediately. And uh, <laughs> no, and right immediately, my dad and my aunt, they spoke Spanish as if they were born there. They wow. didn't have an accent. My dad, uh, sometimes you could tell, like uh, there are there were some things that didn't, they would not come out right. And I said, okay, no, he's not Venezuelan, obviously. Of course, then they would look at him and he didn't look necessarily Venezuelan, right? But but my mom, no accent. She spoke like, uh, like I, I speak in Spanish, not as if she was born there. Wow. I was in, you know, very interesting. And they left and they went when they were older. There is uh, in second language acquisition, which is, by the way, I, I ended up going to college to, uh, you know, I did get a teaching certification and I, <laughs> and I teach Spanish. I ended up teaching Spanish at a university. And uh, I also have a certification in English as a second language, believe it or not. <laughs> I do teach English as a second language awesome. <laughs> with my accent. 
Hmm. And, uh, no, I, that's that's not difficult to believe. And for those of you guys that are unfamiliar with it, the reason that me and Conscience let this lovely woman on the show or even even entertain the thought, she is so fucking brilliant. She's a brilliant poet in her own right, and I know we haven't got to talk about that. Um, but no, I I love what you do with English. I think that in the conversations that we've had specifically about language patterns and speech patterns and what people associate with and what they like and they don't like, these are not conversations most people that even write in English at the level that we do consider. So um, I right. think it's brilliant that you're doing that and you're helping other people overcome something that you had to go through. Right. That's amazing. That's true. So do, you Arabic, do you write in Arabic and Spanish as well? well uh, I didn't in Venezuela because there was not a lot of, uh, the community was very small. There were no uh, schools, Arabic schools. So my mom did try to get us a teacher to come over the house and teach us, but we didn't. So I do know a little bit. When I came when I came here to Michigan, <laughs> I, I did hire someone to come over my house and try to teach me. I wanted to learn. Beautiful. I mean, it's, it's completely different. So I, I would say that I know like an intermediate level. I speak better, obviously, than I can write and read. But I, I did learn a little bit. So I, I'm proud of myself. But I didn't practice. I need more. I should practice the language. Yeah. And I, uh, so there is a theory in second language. It's called the critical period. Good night, buddy. Love you. Love you. Have a good night. Have a good night. Oh, that's so cute. So that adorable. Cute. Sorry, my, my son's my son's getting ready for bed. You don't it's have so to. Cute. You don't have to apologize for Lionel. He's our opening theme, man. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's like our fucking mascot, bro. He's our hype man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's our hype man. He's yeah. our hype man. So so incoming. Do you do you write poetry in Spanish? Spanish being your first language. Right. Okay, I got two two questions for you. Do you write poetry in Spanish? And which do you prefer, English or Spanish for poetry? Because yeah, I always find, right I find people who speak English and another language, and especially Indian languages, seem to prefer writing poetry in English, and I don't know why. Isn't it because in, in, in India, I guess, it's really the first language, it's the United you know, the language, right? That, that I mean, again, I'm ignorant now about that, right? <laughs> no, but I, I definitely think, I think you hit the head on the nail there. I think a major component is that in India, there is no common language but English. That's why it was so easy for the British to take over. These guys weren't even talking right. to each other. Uh, right. <laughs> you know? Um, but no, very but how many so, How many language, how many languages are spoken in India? Like five uh, or six? 23 Ten? official languages last time I checked. Uh, wow. The most pr prevalent to be Hindi and English, but that's mostly, mostly towards the northern region. English is spoken in every single place. Uh, it'd be like if every single state in the United States spoke their own language. Right. And then so in order to live where, in the part of the country that you lived in, you would have to know the language of Texas, the language of like Louisiana. I would have to know right. the language of Oklahoma. And I would have to speak those three languages just to function and operate in Texas. Isn't that crazy? Um, yeah. So that's how India really is for the longest time. But along the lines of what you were saying, and this is a question that I, I think I've, I've asked you before inside uh, privately, but if you're comfortable sharing, and it's something that I like to ask, and it's along the lines of what you were asking conscience too, especially with multilingual lingual, and bilingual creative minds, I love to ask, what language do you dream in and what language do you prefer to write in? Um, because those, those, those to me are very, very different. Uh, and, it, and again, it depends a lot on the language, right? I find people that it, German is a very descriptive language, but it's not a poetic language. 
So I find people that like know German tend to stray towards English. Um, as far as Indian poetry goes, most of it's done in early Sanskrit, which is a, it's like a religious text. Um, so it's not like prevalently spoken or written. Most people don't know how to do that. So English again is the go-to. That's why I think Japan is an interesting case because you have the form. It's a very poetic language. You have the formation of the haikus, and some of the greatest poets in the world are Japanese. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's very interesting. But sorry, I would like I would like to hear your take on this, especially personally from the experience. And dream, dream and think, dream and think. What do you yeah. what do you dream? What language you dreaming and thinking? Yes. So I do in all three languages, even though uh, Spanish is my first language, I consider, uh, even though I learn Arabic second, right, I, my proficiency in English is a lot higher than Arabic now because I've been here, right, and I went to school here. So I consider, again, I, English really at my second language, just based on level proficiency than in Arabic, but I do in all three. And uh, in dreaming, uh, in all three languages is in and, and I think it depends on what I'm dreaming about and uh, and to think uh, I used to tell students when I taught Spanish it's like you know let me know as soon as you start dreaming in Spanish I that means that you are internalizing the language right that means that that's it you're 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 fine right you're gonna learn Spanish you know to higher levels of proficiency so I think that uh, when I started dreaming in English because I came to the U.S., I knew a little bit. Uh, I mean, again, we know we love American culture. Right? I, I learned my English from music. <laughs> I wanted to understand music. I wanted to understand Madonna. I wanted to understand, right? So I learned, uh, and um, so I knew a little bit when I came to the U.S. Uh, I can, I can, I can, I could have conversation, but uh, but not to the point again of dreaming in, in the language or thinking in the language. You're right. It's every time somebody asks a question, I have to think about it. I would resolve it. Uh, but there was a point, I don't know where, because it's very, uh, you know, it's not, uh, you know, at one point, right? It's very, uh, it's a continuum, right? Yeah. Gradual, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, at one point I realized I started thinking in English. And I think it depends on the situation. Uh, if it's something related to American culture or something that I, uh, based on experience that I lived here in the United States, I would, uh, I resort to English. Uh, uh, and I also told Kripa, I mean, I, own, I also swear in the three languages, by the way, in three languages, sometimes all at the same at the, <laughs> three times, at the same time, it's epic, right? People love it. That's right? awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's, 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 a, that's the first thing I look for when I learn, I learn a language, I learn, or try to learn at least a, a, couple, a couple of phrases so I don't seem as American as I do when I travel. I used, uh, to, I used to work for some Albanians. I worked for Albanians that owned a restaurant. And I can swear proficiently in Albanian. In Albanian. Like, I, I can swear like a local, man. I can swear like a fucking local. I can swear That's I can funny. swear like so good in French too. I can speak a bit of French. But the, that reminds awesome. me to now 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 the question I asked a while ago, um, do do you write poetry in Spanish as well? Right, so I started, I, I haven't, I, I try, I attempted, I read a lot of poetry in Spanish, so I've been reading poetry. I told Kripa once that I really don't consider myself a poet. I think it's uh, things that I write, uh, they may sound poetic because I'm a reader of poetry, right? That's what I, that's what I think. Right? It's, 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 it may sound poetic because I love poetry, so I started reading when I was younger uh, poetry, you know, uh, in Spanish, in Venezuela, and and. and I always liked it, literature in Spanish. I'm, I'm an avid reader. I have a bookshelf in my house. I read every single book. But 
uh, I started really writing pieces of poetry just because a friend, uh, you know, said to me that, I mean, you really write poetically. Like, why don't you just, uh, you know, put it out there, right? Like, people may like it, right? And it's in English so far. So I attempted to write only one piece. And so far, just, I guess it's because my audience is in, are English speakers. Right. So I, right. you know, I have not tried to do, I, I guess, uh, you know, in Spanish, right? But I'm sure I can <laughs> if I try. I'm sure I, I need to try. And see, I mean, see what happens. Maybe, right. maybe, right? Uh, in mm. Arabic, I don't think I can do it in Arabic. Uh, I I do attend some uh, open mics uh, right now on Zoom that are Arab poets. There are some podcasts here in Dearborn people who organize. Zoom with uh, poets from uh, the Middle East. Uh, right, because and, and because I, Arabic is one of the most is the old, one of the oldest poetic languages, to my understanding, still it? exists. Right? So poetry has been written in Arabic for a very long time. Right, so. and it's sound. And even if you don't understand everything they're saying, sometimes I really don't understand everything they're saying uh, because it's a classical Arabic is really different than the Lebanese dialect, right? So yeah. some things I really don't get. I have to ask. But it does sound poetic, and it's so beautiful, and it's like, oh, I almost want to cry. I don't even know what they're saying, but <laughs> I want to cry. It's so poetic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Um, uh, in Latin America, poetry yeah. has been very politic, just to bring it, uh, you know, and I think that's something that is uh, very, very, very politic, political. It's, uh, it's there are love poets, uh, poetry, I mean, uh, love poetry, but there is a lot of, uh, you know, political, political stuff. Yeah. Very much, right? And it makes sense. I'm sorry. And just before you ask the next question, I just want to say this for everybody listening and just for the record and as for, as for and speak on Insight's behalf too. Um, the sheer fact that you don't consider yourself a poet in an electric sea. Malarkey! Yeah. Malarkey! Yeah, exactly. In an electric sea riddled and filled to the brim with self-proclaimed asshats calling themselves poets tells me that you have literary talent and you are being humble. I love your works. You are one of the best of us. Don't ever think you're not a poet. Thank you. Right. <laughs> and and yeah. since, since we're on the uh, the topic of poetry, um, <laughs> I don't I don't really I don't really know poetic history like I should. Actually, I've kind of done my best not to because I don't want it to influence my natural writing. But it now how politically? Let's get in. Let's get into the spectrum of politics. And we'll start with bridging the gap in a little segue of what are some right-wing poets or left-wing poets? Is, is poetry more of a left-wing thing? Or is it more... Is there right-wing poetry? Does right-wing poetry exist? Can we name any right-wing oh, we, we can we, we can go into the politics, but I would also love to have Insight uh, come back. And we can even even change the, the, the topic a little bit just insofar as overseas experiences. Um, I'm really mm -hmm. loving the conversations that we're having. And I know we had a last-minute cancellation, guys, with our political expert. So that's why we've deviated a little, little bit for the roadmap this week for you guys that are listening and following along live. But still, quality content nonetheless. Um, that's right. I think what's interesting to me and what pisses me off is the form, the term liberal arts. Is there any other kind of art beside liberal arts? Right? And know. now you have all kinds of individuals that feel like there's a liberal media. Well, who's going to school to learn these skills? Um, and then you get a conservative media, which, ugh, ugh. Um, but I don't think, and I don't mean that conservatives don't take place in artistic expression. I think the best example of this is former President Bush Jr. He's, He's a, painter. a painter. 
Yeah. He's pretty fucking good. He's got his yeah, own studio good. up in Dallas. He's talented. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to think that with his upbringing and his background and everything and being, you know, president of the United States and former and governor of Texas. The uh, thing is, man, yeah. I was a young adult. I was a young adult in those years. And he was just as polarized as Donald fucking Trump. Like, there yeah. was, you either loved him or hated him. And everyone was fighting. It was 2000, 2000 uh, when he was elected, I was in college. And it was like, it was ju- not as bad as like Donald Trump. Yeah, in, in the in the in the liberals now. No, but, but, but he was, was like, he was considered it was, was super considered one of the most conservative presidencies, especially with Cheney running it from behind the scenes. But like, yeah. no, definitely, and something I tell my conservative friends all the time, I go, I never thought I would miss Bush. I miss mm. Bush. Junior did a good goddamn yeah. job. Bring back Junior if that's all you want. I yeah. will accept Junior. Please, yeah. Please let's stop it Bring there. Back. <laughs> you think he'd run again? Do you think he'd run again? I don't think he can. Um, so there, there's a two-term rule uh, as the president of the United States. So oh, Bush, right, Bush right, did the right, two right. terms, but well, he's done. Um, he's done. Yeah, but it's it's very interesting. Um, so artistically, uh, yeah. Sorry. No, go. No, go. I, I was just gonna say I I want to. I'm I'm still. We're, it's been a long segue into yeah. Venezuelan pol- Venezuelan politics. Definitely. And and, and I, I love that we that we kind of ranted about poetry. Now, yeah. now, now, did you start writing Spanish poetry and reading Spanish poetry when you were in Venezuela? So not writing, but reading, yes. Reading poetry when I was in Venezuela. And uh, one of the pieces of poetry, I think that's what drawn me into poetry, right? It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful poetry. I'm sure it's translated in English. I, I know it's translated in English. I, I can look it up. And it was a, it was a, I mean, if we're gonna call it uh, qualified as conservative, maybe it was a little bit conservative, right? Conservative, okay. religious, religiously speaking. And then, okay. uh, and then at the same time, is it, it, it talked about racism, right? It was the, my first exposure to racism. Uh, I was very, I was young. I was, uh, and uh, it's a beautiful poet. It's very. Uh, you know, um, piece of poetry, right? Very famous in Venezuela. He, the name is Andres uh, Eloy Blanco, and it's uh, called uh, "Black Angels," right? Okay. Uh, and it talks about how uh, churches and you know, you always see white angels, but you and it seems that people have forgotten you know, the black angels. I'm sure that there are beautiful little black angels in heaven, right? And right. Uh, but we don't get to see them in the church. So that, that's what really that piece of poetry is about. And I was young and, I, and, and, and it really got to me because uh, uh, Venezuela is very mixed. I yeah. have, you know, from all this spectrum, right? And uh, so we, we do have dark communities. I'm gonna call them dark communities, uh, um, you know, mulatos, you know, then. Yeah. Right, yeah. and yeah. hidden. In the U.S., uh, we I learned that right? it was very interesting. Is um, there is white and black, and uh, to qualify as African American, uh, as long as uh, something like this, right? I'm paraphrasing. It's one eighth blood black, then you're black American, right? One right. eighth uh, of blood. In Latin America, that didn't happen. It's, uh, it's just uh, we have several type of terminologies for a specific type of mix of races. So criollos, mulatos, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. So we do have a. I mean, so I've seen people that are very, very dark, and we do have communities that are mixed, of course, but still uh, African-looking, right? And uh, 
So when I read that piece of poetry, it's like, oh, that's true. Like, these are people I have friends I have in school, and it really got to me. And, and uh, I think it's very highly, it was highly political at the time. I, uh, I think it was written in the 70s. Uh, so it is political. It's also, again, again, maybe conservative. That's my opinion, I'm not saying uh, that is officially being qualified as such. Right. right. Uh, religious is a, is a religious critique, I mean, I guess to some extent, right? Uh, in, in hindsight, not at the time, yeah. right? But, uh, <laughs> Still. right, in hindsight. Uh, so, and then uh, I think uh, poetry in Latin America is political because politics is very important as uh, we talk about politics all the time. It's, uh, I know we talk about politics here in the United States, but in Latin America, it's, uh, it's a more serious thing. It's a really part of the everyday, you know, life. So it, it, politics is, is uh, because of the huge changes right, that we have, uh, politics is an everyday, everyday talk. And, the, the, and the implications and the impacts are uh, based on the policy next week are going to change your guys so big in the next couple okay. of years. It's such an integral part mm -hmm. of their everyday life. So what I'm wondering, um, Insight, is how would you compare the political spectrum and rhetoric of the Venezuela you grew up in as opposed to in recent years? Oh, that's a good question, question because I, right, because, yeah, I saw that. So I definitely changed. But, you know, the thing is, this is something, again, uh, opinion, right? It's not necessarily a fa uh, actual, well, based on facts, based on things that I've seen. I mean, corruption, they always complain that, there be, that now there is more corruption than before. But I remember always corruption being an issue even before Chavez, right, even before socialist, you know, countries. So corruption was always an issue. Uh, and I think the biggest change that I've noticed, and uh, I haven't been there the last five years, but I hear about it a lot, is uh, crime. Uh, and I think it's due, mostly due to poverty, right? And uh, embargoes also that Trump in Venezuela, yeah. but crime has escalated. That's, a, that's something that has changed, that I've really seen change. So, for example, I when I was younger, I was able to wear maybe a ring of gold or maybe gold earrings, right? Nothing exaggerated. I mean, they will, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, if you wear something, what they might try to take it, it right? yeah. Right? And then uh, eventually it started to change, right? And then uh, there was a point in which uh, you cannot wear any gold anymore. Uh, one time I had a very small chain, very, very small chain, gold chain, and uh, somebody just took it. My chest, right? wow. and uh, wow. yeah, oh yeah, and hit <laughs> me in my chest and just pulled it. So I stopped wearing gold at the time. Uh, my purse, I always wear and put it. And I'm, and I'm talking about uh, safer neighborhoods, better neighborhoods, right? Yeah. Tourist areas. So uh, right now, uh, it's it's worse. I right now there's uh, real crime. Um, you know, kidnapping. Have you heard about express kidnapping? Before? No, no, please tell us oh, more. Oh, really? <laughs> and my father was a victim of uh, express kidnapping. And what it is, is uh, it started in, uh, in Mexico is really, uh, they're the leaders on, on express, uh, you know, they're, they're, they lead uh, in, right. into that. But we have it in Venezuela too. And what it is, is they kidnap you, right? And uh, they actually, either in your car, if you have a car, they just take you in your car, they make you drive, and they have a gun. They do threaten you. Uh, they may, if they know where you live or you, you know, they tell you that they will come back to your house and 
um, armed family. Right. So it's kidnapping, actual kidnapping, right? All the elements of kidnapping, and they might kill uh, we might kill you. What they do is uh, is express. The idea is that you they get money, ransom money the same day, as soon as possible. And usually it's the person that's being kidnapped. They can pay the ransom money immediately. Uh, oh, wow. uh, when my yeah, when my father was kidnapped, he was kidnapped for uh, I think eight hours total, the whole wow. afternoon. Yes, and uh, uh, they stripped him of his clothes. They just left him the underwear. <laughs> At least he was he was wearing underwear. They left him in a corner near, near the neighborhood. Yeah, it was, I saw that every time I remember it's so bad. It's like he was so embarrassed, right? Only in underwear they left him up, but they left him alive. He's alive, right? He was alive. Yeah. They didn't kill him. And um, yeah, so uh, the same day, it was eight hours, they kidnap you. What they do is they keep you for a few hours so they can, uh, you know, gain control over you. It's like, well, right. You might not make it alive. It's a psychological game. But, but then after a while, if you just pay whatever ransom they ask, then they let you go. It is and, a business model to them, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And thank you for enlightening both us and the viewers on this. And it's not an issue or something that I'm too familiar with. I knew things like mm -hmm. this did happen, but I've never heard of this notion. And it's even got a name, express kidnapping. And I've always considered in like a hostage or kidnapping situation, there would be a negotiation with another party. You know, that right. the person being taken hostage wouldn't be even part of the negotiation. Right. That's, that's nuts. And I've it traveled to areas of high poverty, even like wonderful cities in the world where there's, there's income, income uh, disparity. Uh, there's uh, income inequality. Yes. And there are people that you got to be careful, even when you're in nice parts of town. Like women will always keep the purses close. You got to keep it on the bo like body. Um, most guys and I have the habit of putting their wallet in their back pocket. I nice. never do that. I've, I've traveled enough overseas, but wallet's always in my front pocket. I know exactly where everything is. Um, but there's all kinds of different things. And it's just that's crazy. And thank you for telling us about that. And I'm yeah, so glad your dad made it through that. And you're able to laugh about it now. <laughs> like it's a good yeah. story. And that right is a yeah. something else that we uh, we see change. You know, changes is the uh, attitudes and people. Right uh, when Chavez came uh, into power, uh, because socialism is a theory. People think that socialism is already a plan, already, and all the and all a government has to do is to uh, install the plan, right, or put it into practice. I mean, it's not really a plan. It's just a theory. And uh, so Chavez did that. He did uh, take the theory and then he developed a plan himself, him, him and his advisors. And uh, something that, and I'm going to use my father's description because I think it's the most, was the most accurate. He said that everything he wants to do is to help the poor, right? And how can we argue against him? Like, how can we stand, you know, against him? He wants to help the poor of Venezuelans, right? Uh, so he did. He started with social programs and... Uh, uh, you know, that, and it was um, it was something that we've never seen before, and I don't think it's uh, maybe there are different models somewhere else, but never in Venezuela. And what he did is he used names from uh, liberators, from the you know those who liberated uh, Venezuela from Spanish rule, right? Uh, Simon Bolivar, you know, and uh, Sucre. You've heard about Simon Bolivar, right? It's the George Washington of Venezuela, right? Uh, so uh, he used those type of names, the, the people who liberated, and he created programs. There were social programs. And one of the programs that he did, and believe it or not, even the opposition, even those who did not want him to be president, they also had the same attitude. Again, like my father said, he wants to help the poor. Like, how can we say no? How we're going to... We're going to be against them. Right. So one of the programs is to eliminate, uh, you know, uh, 
literacy issues, right, levels. We did have at the time about 60% literacy uh, people illiterate in yeah. Venezuela. And so he created uh, one of the programs, I believe the name was Sucre, you know, was, uh, and uh, he, um, there were volunteers and one of the trips that I was there, I did volunteer. I stayed there for a, for a month and in Venezuela, so I used to go every year and I stay for a long time. And I, and I was one of the volunteers and we used to go to rural areas or poor areas. And uh, well, I did it only for a month. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm including myself, but it was very small, right? But people did that. And to teach uh, how uh, to teach people again, how to read and write and liter illiteracy, you know, uh, went down, I think, People claim that it's a uh, it's a hundred percent Venezuelans now are literate, literate, right? So he eliminated Chavez eliminated illiteracy in Venezuela. Um, here in Michigan, there is uh, very close. Uh, it's, in, it's called Mexican Town. Uh, it's in down close to <laughs> close to where I live, right? Very yeah. close, and I, I'm, I I go there a lot, of course, a lot, right? Um, there are a lot of Mexican immigrants that do not know how to read and write. Right, is uh, not. Uh, they think. do not. Is is. I've been there in nonprofits and for nonprofits. I used to do this thing called service learning, and yeah. we used to work with nonprofit organization. And I used to take students of Spanish, and it's like we're going to work with nonprofits. And uh, I mean, they didn't know how to read and write, and they were older, right? They were, and it was it was a challenge. And yeah, uh, yeah so it's. it's that's an issue again in Latin America, and they're here immigrants in the in the United States more likely uh, illegal, right? A lot of them are illegal. Yeah, um, they, th yeah, and most people don't like understand when that's what pisses me off. Especially I hear it all the time in Texas about people talking about the border and stuff. I grew up in Wisconsin. I'll tell you, I, I saw a lot more of a, of the Latin American population up in Chicago and Wisconsin and Michigan that seemed a lot less integrated in society than I do here in Texas. Uh, right. But yeah, yeah sorry. I'm yeah, it's, it's nuts. I'm curious incoming. Yeah. Before Chavez, before Chavez uh, implemented socialism into the Venezuela, Venezuelan society, like what, what was, what preached that? What type of ideology predates the socialism Chavez brought into Venezuela? Very capitalist and very U.S. Uh, led. Right. So, uh, that was something that Chavez came in again, and we may say that maybe it was a mistake that he made. Uh, and then at the same time, he was right, and yet maybe it was a mistake. And uh, it was that uh, it was U.S. led. So oil companies, right? So Venezuela, we are the fifth in the world right? uh, producers of oil. Wasn't uh, in Venezuela? I had no idea. Have, I had no idea. Oh, yeah, we are the fifth in the world. We have uh, yeah. the best type of oil that we can the world can have and and we have more reserves supposedly the last thing i heard that even more than saudi arabia uh yeah. and um and it was uh i remember when they uh, the offices are in caracas in the capital and i was there when they were taken over the government it was a protest and everything was shut down and it was government uh um it was not private right it was government uh, ad, uh administrated okay. by the government, right? But what Chavez did is, and he came out, he was, I don't know if you ever heard Chavez, right? He would have podcasts 
I guess he was the, the the king of podcasts, right? For hours, he will. Oh, he would have enjoyed being here in your podcast, right? For <laughs> hours, right? Chavez and on our podcast, Cripper. Imagine we get Chavez. Is he still alive? Is he still alive? I want Chavez on no, the podcast. <laughs> he died. He passed away. But you know, he was oh. so popular. He passed away. He had cancer, and he passed away. He was such a charismatic and so popular, and he really cared about the small person, about the small right, underdog, right, as I say. I mean, that if you would have invited him, he would have made that appearance somehow, right? Uh, right. Yes. Uh, so what he did is when they took over the government, I mean, even though it was government, uh, uh, you know, administrated by the government, it was not a privatized, like here in the United States, uh, it turned down, and he said it. It's like, can you believe that the passwords, passwords, keys, everything, every information, everything related to oil uh, was in the hands of the United States, All right? So the United States, that's what it was before, right? The United States has uh, its, uh, its hands, they say, I'm using a, Sp a, uh, a Spanish expression and I'm translating it into English. They say okay. it has its hands in everything, Venezuela, right? <laughs> So Chavez came in and he said, fuck that, I'm not, you know, uh, the United States is an imperialist uh, or a very communist type of vocabulary, right? And, and you know, we're going to take them out and we're going to run, we're capable, we have engineers, we have smart people. I, uh, again, that was a huge, uh, and that was an immediate change. I, the United States was uh, uh, led by the United States and then all of a sudden it's not anymore. Um, in in another to... life, I would have loved to be involved with some form of intelligence or like uh, some practical <laughs> learning of political appreciation. And for the last couple of years, and we don't get to see it on the headlines, and there has been some coverage from other outlets, John Oliver did a piece. My heart has been with the people of Venezuela because so many people are interested, the Russian government, the American government, the Venezuelan government, the Colombian government, there's internal factions within Venezuela. A lot of this has to do with their resources rights because most people don't realize they have one of the largest oil reserves on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, bottom line is resources control or commodity when we look at wartime. And so that's something we always look to and um, profit. And with yeah. all of those interests in the region, the GDP per capita has been in decline. People have been starving. There has been mass emigration out of Venezuela, um, mm -hmm. even on the border with Colombia, how the cartels are getting involved, bringing things over the border. Um, because some, to my understanding of it, and this might be very primitive and correct me if I'm wrong, people that are born near the border of Colombia and Venezuela have free will to go across the border uh, as opposed to other regular citizens don't. And other organizations and governments are taking advantage of this so it's it's and we don't hear anything about it in the news no um, nothing nothing not a peep which tells you something's up there which tells you we have vested interest there but um thank you for at least being more enlightening now i know you it's been a while since you've been in venezuela and i know you have family there but are you? Uh, are, can you tell us kind of what's been happening in recent years? Um, I know a phrase that a lot of viewers might be able to relate to is the Maduro diet. Um, there's a lot that's been going on in that region. 
Uh, could you please enlighten us with whatever you uh, you feel comfortable sharing or feel like you know about it that I I for sure don't. Yeah. So something. Kripa, I just got to I just got to say something to Kripa. Kripa, I love your style, bro. You 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 th <laughs> you're thinking exactly what I'm thinking at like every fucking minute. You know it's crazy. Uh, anyway, Kripa Kripa hey, learns. Kripa learns. Yeah, Kripa learns. <laughs> it's great because because I like I like yeah. I like podcasts, but I'm also a Virgo and very organized. Yeah. So I'll. I like straying from the template, but yeah. that I always try and bring it back to the template. You know what I mean? Yeah, you, I call it, you, I, in, you, in comedy. You in comedy, I call it the full circle. You start That's with right. a joke, right? And it's a subtle joke, and it kills with the audience. But the punchline has to be your closing joke too. So you that's come right. back and you refer that joke, and people are like, "Oh, that's that's brilliant." That's this right. Guy's good. That's right. So, but but no, right. um, it's and I, I have a strong background, and um, there's a point in my life where I wanted to be a lawyer before I went to med school. Right. Uh, I'm neither. <laughs> I managed to go. I managed to aspire for law school, make it into med school, and walk away with no degrees. But uh, no. Um, so I I I have I organize stuff like a lawyer would. So I it's, yeah. it's okay. No worries. And, uh, so, okay, so incoming. Let, let's hear about uh, your take on on the recent socialist Madura socialism yeah. going on going on in the last like let's say ten years. Yeah, How long has Madura been in power? Five years. Five years in Venezuela. Uh, Maduro has been uh, maybe six years. How long oh, did Chavez okay. die? Something like that. When did, as soon as Chavez died, Chavez prepared on him. And he was elected democratically, right? So a lot of people, like when people say, it's a, uh, you know, dictatorship, even Venezuela, when they say, it, it's like, oh, it's, it's really not a dictatorship. I mean, he was really elected by the people. So then they talk about fraud and it's like, well, no, there was no fraud, right? I mean, it was one of the most uh, transparent. Okay. Types, you know? So he won, he was electedly, elect, uh, okay, democratically. So, be, so, so before you dip into the past for his, his presidency, yeah. why don't you talk about what happened in a right-wing capitalistic society that caused people to want to elect socialism? Right, so it's, uh, uh, again, it's corruption. That's why I keep saying like, when people, again, even Venezuelans, they talk about corruptions now, that Chavez is a corrupt country and uh, it's a corrupt I mean, government and now Maduro. I mean, I think there was always, uh, there was always corruption before then. Uh, and, and again, I guess the peace, the biggest type of form of corruption is again given just uh, everything to the United States to handle our oil, right? It's like, like you know, the United States, uh, you know, had power over everything. They made decisions, right? Uh, I think that's the piece of corruption. So uh, people were tired. There were already protests, poverty. Uh, you know, Venezuelans, by the way, actual Venezuelans, the poor Venezuelans, they. Um, they didn't have uh, the opportunities that the, the middle class and usually middle class are children of European of immigrants had on different than the United States, completely the, the opposite side. So, and uh, so Chavez came in and wanted to change that. Uh, okay. Again, that was the, the argument. So I, I want to help the poor and, they, and everybody noticed, my family noticed. Everybody hopped on board. Why? And this, he wants to help the poorest, like how we're going to be against them. Now the issue started, and by the way, my brother is a lawyer. He was he was the only one in the house who voted for Chavez, <laughs> so he <laughs> he was on board on the type on the plan that he was proposing right, right. Uh, at the time. Now Chavez was interesting. He tried to take over the government. He tried to do a, a he was a general in the 
uh, in the military, he was a military, right? a soldier. He went against the government and he tried to overthrow uh, an elected president. That was in 92 uh, and uh, he didn't succeed. Uh, I was in Venezuela when that happened. Oh, that was surreal. I remember it was completely surreal. This everything An actual shut down. coup. We, we, came, we, came, we, came, we came close to one here, but nothing like in Venezuela. No, not like in Venezuela. It was yeah. actual, a really good. They <laughs> actual took coup. over right, every state. So the la, always for a coup to succeed, uh, every state was, uh, you take over, but then the capital is important. It's the most important. Once yeah. the capital is in, then it's an actual successful coup. Right. And Chavez was the one that was leading the coup in Caracas, in the capital, and it didn't succeed. Uh, and I remember for a few minutes, uh, everything was shut down. TV was shut down, and we were in the house, and they didn't know what they were going. And my family, my parents, they were already discussing, I mean, what are we going to do if it's going to be a military government? Because we have had military governments in Latin America. Not in our lifetime, not in my lifetime, but we did have, right? And it's very military uh, type of government. So they were debating, I mean, if it's going to be a military government, maybe we will go back to Lebanon, I guess. And Lebanon is not, right. was not better, right? Yeah. So it was uh, it was tense. Uh, then Chavez came on TV and he said, uh, you know, that they didn't succeed in Caracas and to give, again, away the power and they were going to jail, right? Those soldiers that, you know, that uh, uh, rose against the government. Uh, so he went to jail for two years and then he was let go. And after he let go, he decided, okay, so coup didn't work. Maybe I can just run for president, <laughs> right, as an independent. And uh, so unlike the United States, we had the same system like the United States. We had two political parties always running. So either either one was going to win and it was a balance. But, uh, you know, Democrats and, and Republicans in Venezuela, we have Acción Democrática and Cope. So either one was going to win. And he ran as an independent. And, uh, and when I remember that year, uh, we had a one Miss Universe, uh, Irene Saez. She won Miss Universe of Venezuela. She's <laughs> And she ran for... Uh, uh, she was running for Acción Democrática, which is similar to the Democrats here in the United States, right? The more liberal type of, or more progressive, I guess, type right. of party. And uh, if Chavez didn't, you know, win that that year, I think she would have won. Right? Uh, wow. And uh, so what? Chavez won. That's how he came into power. He was an independent. <laughs> okay. And again, people elected him democratically, right? Uh, uh, Immediately. That's, that's very interesting because the way in, in, in our country and, and there and there are several democracies around the world, even currently right now in India, there's major political regime change. Right. Where an independent or third party can actually form and take away power and actually run the government, which is nuts. Right. Um, yeah. Even in the British Parliament, you get the three factions. Uh, it's more mm -hmm. than just the two sides. So that's interesting. Can I ask you then, do you feel like at that time, and I know it's a distant time of the past, do you feel like there were strong tensions uh, revolving segregation, either from an in income perspective or a racial perspective or a religious perspective before people really wanted this change? Right, uh, income perspective. Okay. more than racial. So it was not about, uh, although again, uh, you know, racially, uh, because of uh, Spaniard rule, uh, you know, uh, during that time, you know, the children, the Spaniards, colonists, and the children of Spaniards, they were white, the Criollos, we call them Criollos, were the Spaniards born. In. So they had a system in, uh, in Latin America, and you see it all throughout Latin America. So most of them really made a lot of money, right, and, and owned a lot of property. 
during that time and it went on. So uh, even though it's really not racial, it is kind of racially, you know, uh, divided because again, because of that colonial uh, history, right? So most whites, again, and most who own most money are white, right? But uh, but it's definitely uh, economic. It's a it's a classes type of type of segregation. So you you go to Venezuela, any Latin American country, and you see a poor uh, poor area, very poor. Like uh, the level of poverty here in the United States is right here. The level of poverty in Latin America is right here. So. Uh, Yes, being poor in the United States is not the same as being poor in Latin America. Right? It's not um, the same. No, definitely, and it's no. um, it's. Right. One, I'm glad, at least, that my parents took me at a very young age back to India, right. and I was able to see. And there's no hiding from it, even though there's the slums. Right. Uh, like they're comparable to favelas in South America. Right. Um, mm -hmm. There's no matter what part of town you're in, no matter how much you try to hide it, the income inequality is so vast and so great. You see people that literally can't afford clothes. They can't right. afford shoes. They're living on the side of the street right. next to people that are driving hundreds of thousands of dollars in cars right. from A to B. Mm -hmm. And um, right. it really helps you appreciate what you have. Um, the opportunities that are given to us and just how simple and how many, just a few turns and you could be one of those people, you know, right. and we can't, we can't just neglect them and forget about them because we are them. So here's a question for both of you. Do you yeah. think that, um, that a division of ideology because of the disunity that stems from that divisiveness results in poverty? Interesting. Could you could you uh, could you elaborate? Uh, okay, I, I'm just I'm just curious. Is is if the lack of unity between polarized ideologies is a reciprocated result from that disunity, poverty? Does 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 disharmony create poverty? Is poverty a a a, a, a result of um, opposing factions of thought? Do you think there would be do you think do you, do you think do you think there would be poverty if everyone in the whole country had the same ideology? So maybe I'm gonna use example maybe where if I can you know so this is something that Chavez tried to do, right? Uh, I don't know if you've heard about Paolo Friere. Have you ever heard about Paolo Friere? Here, no. I've heard about him even I, I've heard about him before and I've heard about him here in the United States too. It's really interesting. A lot of people who are called from uh, you know here in the United States called the left, they use a lot of his theories. So he was a Brazilian, uh, he passed away too and a socialist, uh, a social a Catholic socialist and uh, in Brazil and what he did he ended up being the Minister of Education in Brazil. And what he started doing, he worked with poor people, uh, usually farmers, so adults, farmers in Brazil, and he developed what is called social uh, critical theory, if you heard about critical theory, and in a few words, it's more complex than that, obviously, but in a few words, Paolo's theory was, is a, is a theory of compassion, and what he wanted to do is, he said, he focused on literacy, and he went on to, again, and that's, Sounds familiar, right, with what Chavez did. So what he did is he's, he taught farmers in uh, um, Brazil 
to read and write so they can read the contracts because they were being made to sign contracts and, uh, and then they were being exploited by the higher class. Right? Uh, right. And they were told what the contracts and they say, all you have to do is put an X in the contract and they, so what Paolo Friere is, is a critical, it's called critical theory. I've read several of his books, actually more in English than in Spanish because they're so readily available here in the United States. Uh, and um, uh, so Chavez, what he decided to do is, he was actually thinking, I think it's related to what you're asking, Conscious, is that- yeah, you're, you're honestly, honestly incoming, yes. you're already right right on my train of thought. I, I know, <laughs> I, I, got, I got something to say as soon as you're done talking. I already know what you're gonna say. I already know but what you're gonna talk about. So, so keep on going, keep on going. He went, what he did, he decided to do is, I said, he thought that maybe one type of mindset, one type of ideology, right? And the ideology was critical theory. And, uh, and he wanted to install it, not just in the government, he made it a part of the, of the education system. He changed That's the right. entire curriculum. And uh, here in the United States, the person leading uh, critical theory, he's an American, is uh, Peter McLaren. And, uh, and I, by the way, I met him once in a conference. I've met Peter McLaren in person in a conference. Wow. Uh, yes, it's, uh, so he's the leading, of course, he's not taken very seriously by a lot of people here in the United States, but he's, uh, again, uh, leading in, in critical theory in English here in the United States. So, it's not politically, but it's education. So what uh, Chavez did, and Chavez, I think, will have liked you very much, both of you. He invited Peter McLaren to be one of the advisors in Venezuela. He went to Venezuela and he was part of the advisors to create an entire new curriculum for the entire country. And if you go into the website, I haven't been in the website though for a while. I'm assuming it's still the same, you know, for a few years. But if you go into the website, the Ministry of Education in Venezuela, everything Paolo Friere is there. Uh, his theories, everything. And, and, and if you read what the curriculum, the, again, Common Core, uh, recon points, everything is based on critical theory. And uh, so, yeah, he tried to do what you... So, so, so for the audience's benefit and a little bit of my own, um, for those of us that are unfamiliar with critical theory, could either of you guys elaborate on what we're talking about here? About well, critical uh, theory? Critical, what is critical theory? Critical theory is aligning dominant train of thought. Is, is trying to prove that there is there is one way to do things. It's either you're yeah. focusing on everybody or you're focusing on nobody. Let's focus on everybody. So so the the leading of my question was to be that there is one ideology that doesn't consider everybody, and there is one I ideology that does. The idea of critical theory is that let's focus on the on the on the ideology that considers everybody at the same time. So what it comes down to, and the reason I ask this question is because it's a it's a it's a it's a factoid of divisiveness, is that right wing politics in theory, capitalism does not focus on everybody, whereas socialism focuses on everybody. You know what I'm saying? No, no, yeah. So I feel like the underlying question then becomes, can we solve for poverty given yes. any system of thought? And if so, how? And, there, and, and, and in turn, what are the leading contributing factors to poverty in the current yes. world? Is it, is it capitalism? Does capitalism exhaust poverty? That, well, that, that's what it comes down to. 
resources are inherently limited, right? So given any system, I think there's going to be people that will try to have more than others. Yeah. Call yeah. that greed. Call that a natural competitive market. Now, I think something that Insight's been saying a lot of, especially um, in the history of Venezuelan politics, is interesting. Literacy. Even in the history of American politics, when you kind of look at it, uh, at the formation of this, this union, um, getting people to be more literate was not only significant and important to have a well-informed voting, uh, I forget what they called the uh, votership. There was a fun old-timey word for it. I, it eludes me anyway. Um, to have your voters well-informed through both the press and literacy was one very important issue. The other thing is there is a strong correlation between literacy and poverty, literacy and poverty rates. Um, so it seems to be that the more education you receive, and I know the educational system has changed, the more literate you are, uh, the less likely you are to fall into poverty. And think um, about that. Think about what yeah. you just said. Think about how capitalistic higher education is. Well, you, you, you got to be rich to go to the best schools or yeah, have the, or be the best in your whole fucking grade by a landslide. You know, you do. But at the same time, a lot of universities were originally created to entertain thoughts and to, to ascertain truths, but they've become business models, right? Um, a lot of people go to schools and go to, a type of school or a place, not because of what they're going to learn there, but because they're going to have a document that gives them accreditation from there. And that itself has an inherent value. Um, so I'm not sure if universities combat literacy, because I know loads of people that are trained professionals who I would consider illiterate in certain matters. Um, right? But I do believe that the educational system is greatly flawed in the modern world. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, okay, so let's say we, we, we form a system where child literacy and, and population literacy is in the foreground of importance so that there is more people able to attain higher education. And do you think that if we limited capitalism in universities and made it more affordable... Which is, now I'm just talking left wing ideology. Yeah, let's, so let's I guess just entertain what, it. Let's let's let's, let's do it in the I, bubble. I, I, let's do it in the bubble. I, I guess what it boils. I guess what it boils down to is education being free and not capitalistic in any way is a left wing ideology. But does that then foster increased literacy within the general population because there is more need and more desire to learn to be literate because you can achieve anything because the education doesn't cost anything. It takes away the class war. It makes it strictly based on intelligence and not on class. I, I would love to live in that world. I would love to live in a world where there's a universal basic income, where we pay citizens merely for being citizens, for existing, in which each one of us can specialize in what's going on. But I think we are so far from that. We yeah. are just in a world where like, hey, police, don't shoot black people. That's the world we live in. And I right. love to entertain these grander thoughts, but let's enter, let's, let's, let's for a second consider what you're saying. Let's say that we live in a world, in our country, where there's free education for everybody. Okay, you have a public option. 
some form, there will always be a private option. The right. oldest schools in the United States are all private institutions. Harvard University is not a public thing. It is a private no. thing. Um, they will right. continue to charge out the ass. They will continue to be selective about who they let in. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if there's any way to eliminate that. I think maybe the mentality has to be... We have to be unified. Historically speaking, as Americans, we've always unified over a common threat or a common enemy. Um, this is what tends to happen in histories and countries all over the world. And that's why I was kind of asking Insight earlier about this transition to Chavez. And you kind of look at the transition in power and the radical people we're let, letting into the mainstream now. It's because subconsciously, whether or not we want to express it, we feel like quality of life is in decline. And we're all upset about that. And we want to change that. And we don't necessarily know how. So we're going to go ahead and say, fuck it. You sound like maybe you got an option. Try it. Um, right. And in that rhetoric, I think a lot of people get lost. But I don't think there is an immediate solution in changing the system. Do I think or agree with the current system? No. Um, but I'm not sure what the solution is. I'm not sure if we changed our ideals, if anything would change. I think people would still manage to pull this bullshit off. The same right. circumstance, just somehow. They would still be just as corrupt. They would so still the be I just as nepotic and inclusive. So um, the, ide the, the idealism of greed, a.k.a. capitalism... Has, has structured our existence so formidably that it's going to be impossible to escape it. Well, unless we have a common enemy, and I think we are, you know, we try to find and rally that common enemy. And what happens is you have like small political voices. It's what Hitler did. Hitler gave yeah. Germany a common enemy. Right. Uh, it unified its people. It was atrocious. You look at America. Um, that's why I miss Bush Jr., um, whatever you may think about his political stances, during war, a time of war, during a time where we felt attacked on the home front for the first time ever, he unified the country. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of negative repercussions about how we went forward on this, like uh, dealing with issues with Islamophobia, um, all kinds of things that I think we're becoming more mindful to as time passes on and, um, and trying to be more accepting of peoples. But... To unify people in any given time of crises. And that's why when we talk about the most previous POTUS, the president, and people come up with all these political bullshit reasons that they're going to try to, he's tough on China. I just say, do name one actual policy thing or example of leadership where this guy was a leader. I don't care what you believe. If I elect you to be my leader in a group, whatever group that's going to be, when shit hits the fan, we are all turning to you. What's next? What are we going to yeah, do? Yeah, and how are you, how are you going to do it gracefully? And, and, and in response to all times of crisis we faced under the previous president, he failed us. And that's poor leadership. Yes. It doesn't matter what, what, what if you're in a company, if you're in a team, that's poor leadership. Socially, he fucked everything up. Now, yeah, in, in times of crisis, Kripa, he, he failed. You, you, you mentioned, and totally I agree with you. 
you mentioned the idea of identifying a common enemy. Now, oh, yeah. there, there's, there's a similarity between Hitler and Chavez, if I do, if I do endeavor. The, the, the extreme right and the extreme left do both create common enemies. Oh, yeah. the, the enemy, the enemy was more for the, for the left is more of a sociological prophecy. It's like, let's eliminate something that's negative. That's exactly what Hitler did. Hitler said, let's, uh, let's eliminate something that's negative. Chavez said, let's make everybody able to read and everybody have an income. Our enemy is people who can't, who aren't able to read and aren't able to make income. That is our enemy. Hitler did, Hitler made an enemy. Socialism makes an enemy. So there, it might be a, a person who's an enemy. It might be an idea that's an enemy. But polar opposite ways of, of, of politicians, the way they think, there's always a creating of something that could be better. And, and now, now, speaking of Donald Trump, yeah. what, let, let's take a minute. Let's take a minute and just try and dig deep and think about what is good about right-wing politics. What, what good does it do? What I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and the, and the way that I look at it is there is no it's it's like it's like a Clint Eastwood film. Nobody hates a principled conservative. It is so hard even if you may not be with the times if you're a principled conservative genuinely principled, genuinely moral conservative, not just what you like to believe for convenience, but genuinely moral. You stand your ground, and that ground also happens to be the ground on which most people stand. You stay in the right. Nobody has a problem with you having more conservative values. Now, the mainstream rhetoric coming out of the GOP in the last recent last few years, they claim to be the moral party, but they don't take the moral decision. There was a point and time in this country where there were still people on that side, including, I can give you the example, Senator John McCain, uh, who ran for president, that was part of the McCain-Feingold Act, which initially <laughs> reduced lobbying to below, I think, like 10 or 15,000 per pack or something. And ultimately, they found loopholes with the formations of super PACs and things like that. But so that lobbyists weren't ultimately able to buy pure access to certain candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a bipartisan bill. Feingold was actually a senator from Wisconsin uh, at the time. But so there's no hating a principled conservative. But you look at the GOP's numbers, in fact, over the last 20 to 30 years, they only win elections because of one districting, um, two mobilizing voters that previously wouldn't have voted. They have not right. won the popular vote in a very long time in a majority since, of places in this country. Since since Reagan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I think that has to do with maybe the electoral process that's failing us there. But So um, is there... But is I, there... I think both, both sides, both sides, though. Let's go back to what you were talking about earlier, just briefly. Um, with a common enemy, the blues are going to tell you what the common enemy is. So are the Reds. Yeah. Uh, these, these are generally scapegoats. Sometimes there is a threat that we face in times of crises that we must stand united against. Yes. But most of the time, in matter, matters of politics, these groups, these people, 
are merely scapegoats. Why? Because it's easy to point the finger at them, and now you think I'm going to solve all this shit for you, you're going to vote for me. And I don't think either side actually gives a fuck about the people anymore. No, they don't. They um, don't. They're just they're just after votes. And I think a lot of us know that and are able to see past rhetoric for what it is, political. Um, and so what, what, what disturbs me is we create these common enemies, which are purely political scapegoats. And there is a common enemy in the room uh, that we don't rally against. And maybe that's where the solution lies. Uh, who's the common I don't enemy? Know. That's, right. Who's, so, who, so am what, I, who am okay. I to say? <laughs> so the fundament, fundamentals of, of, of conservativeness and liberalness. Yeah. Uh, conservatives want, want the government to do the least amount possible for a cohesive structure of parliament. Um, to help the majority of people in a capitalistic society be able to succeed, capture the American dream, whereas liberals want the most amount of government in involvement to protect the people who can't protect themselves. So what are wh where's the common ground? Where 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 do we say I don't want that much government or I don't want I, I we need more government? What, let's talk about the center. What, what does the center mean to you? What, what does an old blue dog central liberal mean to you? Is that the answer, do you think? To take, to take the best yeah, parts I, I, of I each side? It, I think historically, and what people go is they, they go to law school. Right? There's going to be the blues, there's going to be the reds, but they all eat at the same steakhouse. They might not sit at the same table. All right? um, they come up with issues ahead of time that they know, okay, Let's make the issue gay marriage in this election. Okay, we'll talk about gay marriage. You guys prefer this side. We prefer this side. Now, this is kind of what the map looks like on where people vote. I'm comfortable with taking those votes. Are you comfortable with the votes you have? Yeah, cool. We, we, can, we can play with that. These, these are a few battleground areas. Fine, we'll play with that. All right. And both the Reds and the Blues agrees. Gay marriage is an issue. Um, right? And so each political talking point up until the previous POTUS followed this form of rhetoric where both sides would ultimately well ahead of time agree on what the talking points were going to be what would in entice most Americans to try to vote but would maintain voting lines where they ultimately were so um, that's corruption like mutual in, in, its, corruption. In, in, in its own way but that's also an understanding of the rhetoric you know, people literally go to law school just to play with English, so to, to fuck with the masses, mm -hmm. you know, um, and it works. It works. And it's kind of what we do as writers, uh, but in a different way, in a, in a more honest way. Um, but like, so now, and I think Obama talked about this a little bit, actually, we live in a world where there is no longer, for most people, a distinction between opinion and fact. Everybody thinks they're a fucking expert. Mm. Everybody thinks they're the world's greatest detective. Most people aren't. And in that world, riddled with misinformation, people are believing crazy shit. And other people are just rolling along with it because they're not really concerned with what you're believing insofar as what you're believing adheres to my end goal. Right. Um, exactly. 
So, so the, there's these know. lies. There, there's this misinformation. There yeah. are these lies and deceit and corruption. Um, let, let's take a minute and discuss what are some of the lies the right is telling. And I want I want to get incoming's uh, input on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired of hearing what, my own voice. <laughs> what, are, what, are, what are some of the lies? No, no, Kripa, you're you're fucking brilliant, man. Don't don't yeah. don't put yourself down. Like, oh, no worry, fucking, I heckle. I heckle. You 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 touch on points that are like so important yeah, to reality. Don't worry, you listeners that are out there, you wonderful people that support me and my personal artistic endeavors, and everybody that supports conscience and incoming insight as well. Without you guys giving me the confidence I have, don't worry. I joke like that often, but I'm I've okay. I, I found my but, mojo. But, <laughs> but you're you're you know you have you have no reason to ever feel out of place is what the point that I'm trying to make. Oh no worries, no worries. And I, and I, and I you gener- that. Yeah. once again you have generated deep thought inside this bald cranium of mine, and, and beautiful bald cranium, I may add. <laughs> thank you very much. And, and I'm wondering, like, what we we've identified some good things of capitalism, the American dream, everybody can become a millionaire. That's that's the American dream. That's what that what that's what is the envy of the world. Everyone wants to be able to come to come to Hollywood, audition for a fucking movie and become a movie star. Like everyone everyone wants that. Everyone wants the American dream. The 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 idea of perfection of capitalism. Okay. So, I'm not sure now, I'm now, not sure if that has to do with capitalism or if that's just a first world thing. The, the independence to have conversation like this, to freely express, right. to wake up in the morning and define what we are going to be and then become it. I think that's an right. issue of the first world. I'm not sure if that's an issue of democracy. So what I pose to you, Conscience, before I know you have a brilliant question too, um, is what exists in a communism that doesn't exist in a democracy? What exists in a democracy that doesn't exist in a socialism? I don't personally believe that the worlds created by those governments or trains of thoughts have any one institution or implication that is mutually exclusive from the other train of thoughts. I think those are purely bureaucratic terms for people to maintain power. Dude, I got an answer for you. Okay. Collectivism. Interesting. How so? Please, please elaborate. Uh... The, the the idea that original thought is beneficial to everybody um, okay. the idea the idea that it's not about the big picture it's about the small picture that's what these governments forget to realize is that change doesn't happen on a macro scale it happens on a, on a micro scale we should be learning how to how to interact with people in our in our individual communities and how to support our existing communities before we start existing people on a grand scale. And I think what every what every political faction forgets is the idea of, of micro-collectivism, where we have to put focus on our individual communities before anything can ever be, ever be possible. The problem with political ideologies is that they, they consider everyone as one. It's groupthink. They consider groupthink more important than independent thought. And that is what these that is what these factions and these and these ide- ideologies forget is that there's so much more to be learned than just generalizing everybody into one pool. Um, as a general guideline, uh, and we've talked about this before, diversity is good. Whether it's diversity of people, whether it's diversity of thought, whether it's diversity of product, no matter what school of thought you believe in, to argue that diversity is bad you're impotent and incompetent. Uh, 
Yeah, we've we've uh, even talked we've even talked about cripple. Me and you once had a conversation a long I mean, time ago. The genetic level of it, yeah. Yeah, the genetic level, like the the genetic yeah. diversity. Like if every if every human being had one chromosome from every race on the world, we'd have less disease. We'd have more intelligent people. We'd have more capable oh, linguistics. Please. We'd have more. We'd have we'd have higher higher level of intelligence. And it, diversity is key. And that's what these. That's what these big groups trying to cluster people into polarized thoughts neglect to consider is that there, it, it's not that simple. It, it starts on a micro scale. We need to start hearing every person. And now we're talking about um, we're talking but, but do about. We, but, but do we need to hear every person, though? Because I like that thinking. I, there's, there's something inherently brilliant about that when treating a cancer. You know, we start like invasively, we started removing organs, we did chemo, we did not have a microscopic, localized way to treat the pathology, if you will. Um, I'm being very careful with my words. But because uh, when you start talking about pathologies and politics, that's when you start to sound fascist, and which I am not. Um, anyway, what I'm trying to get to here is if we address these communities on a smaller level, um, on a more microscopic level, on an individual basis, don't we have to listen to all the stupid people too? Yes. Yes. But like the the guy that stormed the Capitol, who's eating organic food with this fucking Viking hat, American flag, that dude, you're telling me that I have to listen to that guy? He might I'm, I'm, be really good. He might be really good at training dogs. <laughs> Touche. We can we can find a place for him. I feel you. I think that's good. That's a good way of thinking. But I'm not sure that there's any one school of thought that really gets people to work that way, to think that right. way. I think I that no matter. If we would have, if America was a democracy, if America was a communism, if America was a socialism, if we were a republic, even if we were a fascism, and arguably some ways we are, I heckle. I love you, America. It's true. But it's but true. Uh, but but uh, I was born in Northern Michigan on the Fourth of July. Now you guys can figure out my social security number. Anyway, um, no. As as I digress. Um, I don't think I think we would ultimately end up with the same problems no matter what system of government we had. I think I, government I wanna... is a necessary evil though. Fuck libertarians. If you're a libertarian, go fuck yourself. You are a conservative that does not want any of the moral implications of being a conservative. Imagine a world without stop signs. Okay, Mr. Libertarian, next time your neighbor's house is on fire, please try to call the fire department. Oh wait. Um and by the way, who's building and paving your roads? Like people, people don't understand. Government no, I is necessary. Inc- I wanna... it's necessary. Sorry, I'm sorry. Let's ask incoming something. I'm sorry. We've just gone on a tangent for a while. I just, I just wanna, I wanna introduce a train of consciousness. Okay. That I think that I think will benefit the entire world, and it is a an ideology and a method of social reinforcement crafted by a man named Wolf Wolfensberger. He was a social worker. He was a he was a social worker back in the '60s. And he focused on something called social role valorization. And what the idea was, there was two things. One is positive reinforcement. Kripa, I like your beard. It looks really good. You should keep on growing it. That's positive reinforcement. Kripa, you bite your nails. 
It annoys the fuck out of me. I've told you for months. I've told you for months that I hate when you bite your fucking nails. Yeah, I hate right. it. I can't stand it. And every time I see you bite your fucking nails, I'm yeah. like, Krippa, that's disgusting. Stop biting your nails. Right? You you, uh, you, totally, you totally know that I hate when you bite your nails. So now yeah. I, in, I introduce the concept of negative reinforcement, which is not yeah. criticism. It is the no, no, absent... No. It is the absence of a pre-existing reinforcer, where the reinforcer that I was giving you was not helping me decrease your behavior. So what I do, you know, you know full well that I hate when you bite your nails. And yeah. I'm not going to, I just shut up and I stop telling you that I hate you when you bite your nails. So, I stop so let's, criticizing let's, let's you. Let's remove the negative reinforcement. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's remove the negative reinforcement and see what happens. And the positive, rein, the positive behavior always increases. You you eventually really? learn you eventually learn that biting your hair fingernails is not socially acceptable. The same thing, the exact same thing. When you're criticizing political ideologies, they know you don't like them, and it's not doing shit except creating divide. So why don't we all, as a society, remove the negative reinforcers and just see what happens? Stop the stop the negativity and just see what happens. It might be better because nothing's getting better. Let's try and get better. Let's try and make things better. And all we can do is give up and admit defeat and see what happens in the next generation. Like, really, that is punk That is punk rock in its entirety. Peaceful resistance. Sometimes you just have to not fucking say it and hope they get better by themselves. And that's what that's the idea of collectivism is that we're putting the power in the people's in, in, literally in their own psyche. The power is put in their own psyche to change because they know what their undesirable behaviors are. And we have no matter what we do, we can't change it with no matter how much we criticize. It's not working. Let's try something else. Peaceful resistance. I, I really dig that. I dig that punk rock politics philosophy you got going on there. But I fear that. Leadership would not adopt that mentality, nor would we be adopted as leadership. 